space calling. You're listening to Wild Weasel, a podcast about wargaming ideas, people, and history. I'm Bruce Garrick, your host and electronic warfare technician. time. And if you're a regular listener, well, you don't need me to tell you that. Not sure what else there is to say. Well, I think I actually do. So point number one, this is about the 10th time I've sat down to try and actually do another wild weasel. It's probably the thousandth time I've thought about doing another wild weasel. You know, it's not like I forgot or woke up this morning and thought, oh, wait, that podcast I do, I just remembered. I haven't done one in a while. It's, It's been kind of bugging me, but for some reason, Today, I actually got it done. And I think I know the reason for that, too, uh, which we'll get to shortly. So point number two is that I do appreciate all the people, and there have been quite a few over the past, holy cow, two-plus years. I can't believe it's been that long, who've written or posted or tweeted or whatever asking when the next Wild Weasel would be. I've heard from a lot of people. And I want to make it clear that I'm not saying this to like pump myself up or promote Wild Weasel as being something super. I, all I'm doing is I want to acknowledge all the people who took that time. Because they did take time to say, hey, they enjoy the show and they really hoped I would do more of them. Uh, I got a very nice note from a person who was selling me a copy of Long Street Attacks on Board Game Geek. Uh, this is over a year ago. And the person gave me a steep discount solely to thank me for having done the podcasts up until then because they'd really enjoyed them. I got a fair number of tweets or direct messages, even messages on BoardGameGeek or posts to message boards saying they really wanted more Wild Weasels. Okay, so if you were one of those people, thank you. I very likely read uh, your messages, uh, even if you think they went in uh, maybe not very visible places. Um, But I did see a lot of stuff, and thank you, and you can take pleasure in the fact that you did get me to podcast again. You really did, because I figured... You know, if people are enjoying this, then, you know, I can keep doing it. And uh, the only thing is I had to figure out what the actual thing would be uh, that I would keep doing because uh, I'd run into a problem. And namely, that's that the war game space, uh, pun probably intended, uh, has changed a lot since the podcast launched in 2016. And, uh, you know, one of the main things I wanted to do, I've said this before, uh, with the original Wild Weasel episodes was to be able to distribute war game news. I think I mentioned even in the last Wild Weasel how now you can find just about any kind of wargame content all over the place. I was just recently, in fact, watching an episode of Whiskey Charlie, which is a YouTube chat show from Moe's Gaming Table, uh, in which the participants were talking about how they learn new games and what is helpful to them and how important playthrough videos are. And while I was watching that, it hit me just how much stuff there is now to watch and listen to. That definitely wasn't the case back when I started Wild Weasel. Back then, it was pretty much just audio podcasts, and very few of them, nothing really dedicated to war games. Uh, now you have video roundtable discussions, you know, detailed examples of play, those infamous unboxing videos. Uh, you've got Ardwolf Slayer, you've got Grant and Alexander at the Player's Aid, 
Uh, Dan Pancaldi always has something to say about something. That guy is everywhere. Uh, it, it's really a full-time job just to keep up with this stuff. And to be honest, one of the reasons I haven't put together a new Wild Weasel in so long is that I really didn't think it made sense to continue the podcast in the way I'd been doing it. It just seemed like an outdated format, and it, it's it's hard to honestly get excited about things that are outdated. Now, like I said, you can get news and discussion pretty much anywhere. Um, w- which I think may be the wrong way to look at it, honestly, because if you look at things objectively, the answer to the question, you know, does anyone really need Wild Weasel, <laughs> is a resounding no. Uh, but you could probably say that about any internet gaming show, period. Uh, no offense, but come on. Uh, what's valuable is that the people doing it are doing what they want to put out there, you know, what's meaningful to them. And I think that might have been a disconnect with Wild Weasel between what I was doing you know, in the past, which was meaningful to me, uh, but what's meaningful to me now. You know, once the wargaming news scene took off, it just it seemed silly to produce a whole news segment just because that's what the show required. Uh, and the more time there was between shows, the more time I had to spend going through all the so-called news, uh, much of it too old to be of use. And doing interviews felt a bit artificial because they weren't really necessarily connected to the rest of the show. Now, and don't get me wrong, though. I still love talking to people about games just all the time. But <clears throat> in the context of Wild Weasel, I think it made for a disjointed show, in my opinion, at least from a planning standpoint, because I had three things I was doing. Writing up news, uh, finding an interviewee, and formulating some views on a particular subject, and none of that was necessarily connected. So uh, how do I fix this? Well, what I decided on was to focus on the stuff that matters to me, just like anybody who puts stuff out there focuses on the stuff that matters to them. Uh, And then just make shows around it. Uh, And this is probably not going to come as a surprise to you if you watched any of my, for example, DNB and Foo game videos or listened to my rants on Old Wild Weasel. uh, You probably know that the thing that connects all these games for me is the history that they represent. That's the most important thing to me about any game. Uh, aside from the the camaraderie of playing the game, and uh, that's something that I'll talk about in the future as well. But um, you know, I'm always turning over the historical design uh, trade offs that I feel a game's making, and also comparing how different games about the same subject solve the same problem. Okay, and uh, I have a ton of thoughts about those things. So <clears throat> why not make the podcast specifically about them? And I was reminded of this recently when a friend of mine. Uh, He asked me for a selection of books to read about the Battle of Britain because, wait for it, he was playing John Butterfield's excellent uh, RAF solo game and was waiting on delivery of Jeremy White's and Gina Willis's equally great Skies Above Britain. So for him, like for me, uh, history is really an essential part of the game. And if the books are part of the history, then the books should be part of the podcast. Okay, so... Uh, what you're going to see going forward is a podcast that's driven more by the stuff I'm playing and what kind of historical diversions it takes me on. Uh, there may be book suggestions. Who knows? I mean, okay, there will be. Uh, um, but I think if I make history the common thread running through this historical gaming podcast, that will make it easier for me to, you know, think of shows to do and motivate myself to do them because I'll be thinking about this stuff all the time. Uh, so with that, uh, that means we won't be doing a new section this time, Okay. Uh, I'll still throw in items occasionally, you know, stuff I want people to know about. Like, for example, this plug uh, for Pat Mullen's uh, Hot Dry Season over at Legion War Games. Uh, come on, guys. It only needs 56 more pre-orders to get into the production queue. I really want to see this game on the table. I mean, you got to at least go take a look at it. 
there'll be a, uh, a link in the notes. But mostly, uh, I'm going to assume that you're getting up-to-date wargaming news from elsewhere, and then that's not why you're listening to this. So <clears throat> since there isn't a new section, uh, let's go straight to the interviews. Uh, we have two this time, actually. The first interview was with uh, Herman Lutman, a designer of many games, including the outstanding Blind Sword series. Now, <laughs> the first time we did this interview, I had a catastrophic hard drive crash shortly thereafter and lost the interview. Whole thing. Boom. Bye. Uh, and that was in the summer of 2021. <laughs> so a few months later, I went back and re-interviewed Herman. And I actually checked when I was doing this out the date on the files, these are from December 2021. So before you fast forward through this, because it's so old, many of the games we discussed, uh, with the exception of A Most Fearful Sacrifice, um, still haven't been released. So it's like a preview. Uh, It's just like a year and a half later. Uh, Isn't that something? (laughs) Uh, Including a Plum Island horror, incidentally. Uh, Like I said earlier in the podcast, wargaming doesn't uh, move all that fast. Although I'm not sure Plum Island horror is a wargame. In any case, uh, I really enjoyed talking to Herman and having uh, re-listened to the interview as I edited it. I don't really think it suffers at all from being that old. Not at all. Uh, I certainly am just as excited about At Any Cost Mets as I was back then. Uh, Still no Kunigratz. And Rock of Chickamauga is still years away. Okay, here's Herman. We we talked... A few months ago, I looked, checked. It was, uh, it was, uh, it, I think it was in August, and uh, yeah, I think August, yeah, yeah. And it was, and you were in the midst of, you were sort of, you were thinking about some things. Uh, you <laughs> had, you are the designer of a of a series for the listeners that uh, they may not be familiar with it. And I, people need to get this game. It's called At All Costs Mets 1870, which um, oh, at, at any cost. Yes. Oh, sorry, at any cost. Yes, at any cost. My my fault. So you're you're the designer of this game called uh, At Any Cost Mets 1970, and uh, and a friend of mine, uh, you know, he didn't know anything about the. Uh, it's a Franco-Prussian War game for the people don't don't that that date doesn't say anything to. Um, but uh, I, I I suggested it to a friend of mine who didn't know anything about the Franco-Prussian War, and uh, about a week later he texts me back and says, this is a brilliant game. And I said, well, why is, it, why is it a brilliant game? And he said, because there are so many things to think about, but the system isn't all that complicated. You have to really sort of plan things, and there are a lot of options. And, you know, then he, so he went to the, uh, and he, he likes to do this, he likes to games for uh, historical periods that he doesn't know about. He likes to play the game first and then read and see what happened in the actual battle. And he said that what he did was almost exactly what happened in the battle, but he wasn't planning it that way. He just, he, he was thinking about, well, how could I attack this best? You know, what what, what would the Prussians want to do here? Uh, you know, at Gravelot or you know, Gravelot or, uh, uh, you know, Mars Latour. And that's this, and and so then he he went to uh, some of your other games that use this blind sword system. He's a big Civil War guy, so he said, "Oh, I'm gonna you know I'm gonna pull out Longstreet attacks," and uh, and he loved that game. And then he got uh, you know these these he just the, the blind the, the the chip pull of the blind sword system uh, is very conducive to crazy things happening, but they're interesting, and you have to deal with a lot of of uh of possibilities 
and he he right. he really liked that aspect. So um, now you were telling me about uh, you were going to take the blind sword system. Somebody else wants to do uh, Sadova, or which is also Kunigrats. Uh, is that still happening? Yes. Okay. So actually, to go back to your friend's comment, which I really appreciate, but I t tell him thank you very much. So the whole reason I designed the blind sword system was for exactly the reason he states. It's my war games weren't playing like my military history was reading, right? So it kept dawning on me as I'm digging more into these books that the war games aren't doing what the uh, what the history books are saying should happen, right? So the whole idea was like, well, well, how come I can't do this in a game the way it says in the in, the, in my books that I'm reading? Mm -hmm. So eventually, I evolved, the system evolved where I, I think I came to the conclusion that warfare is not so much like chess; it's more it's more of a reactive mm -hmm. thing. You know, like Moltke said, you know, the, the plans never survive contact, right? Right. So rather than a war game being, I plan all my moves out perfectly and I do chess-like moves, it's more like, here's my plan, let's see what happens. And really the test of a good general is who reacts the best to mm -hmm. how this battle develops. Mm -hmm. You know, how do they react to the fog of war? How do they, or to the fortunes of war? So... You know, when something good surprisingly happens, are you in a position to take advantage of that opportunity? Or something surprisingly bad happens, have you set up enough backstops to keep it from being a catastrophe? Mm -hmm. So that whole thing evolved. The chip pull is just perfect for that, right? Because it's it's. But the the event part of it is what makes Blind Swords unique. So that's where you get the history of that particular era or battle. Right. And it's. And it's built in there so that I call it historical chaos. So mm -hmm. it's chaotic, but it's within the realms of possibilities. And in this case, you know, it, it, within the realms of what happened at that battle. So it doesn't script anything. It just kind of leans things a certain way. But, for example, in the Franco-Prussian War, you don't want to just do the old, you know, the old, when they did the Burnside rule at Antietam, right, where you just say, well, we're going to freeze you for five turns. Mm -hmm. So the French player, in, at any cost, has viable strategic options. He constantly feels like he can do what he wants to do. He can overwhelm the Prussians. Mm -hmm. So if he plays his chits properly, he can do. So there's always that, that kernel of hope. It's not just a flat out, well, you're not going to move for five turns, and the Prussians are going to have their way with you, and all the Prussian units are rated better than the French units. That's not the case. The French army was actually pretty sharp back then. I mean, they were experienced from a couple of wars. The generals were actually were decent at one time, but they'd, they'd become lethargic, and there was a whole political situation where they, you know, it just kind of was festering on the inside there. Right, the Republicans so, and the monarchists and that kind of thing. Yeah, so so that whole that whole uh, feeling of the blind sources, I and mean, it works for the Civil War too. All right, you know, especially for the more confused battles, uh, and that. So yeah, so. To your friend's point, I'm glad he said that. I'm, I'm very happy. As a matter of fact, when I wrote the uh, the um, the playbook for the game, mm -hmm. the designer's notes in the playbook, the history of the campaign, I actually set it up so that I have inset inserts where if something happened historically in the insert. I tell you in the game where I try to reflect that. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, that's that it. Of the campaign. <clears throat> right, right. So, yeah, 
I was very conscious of the fact that a lot of people didn't know what didn't know a lot about the Franco-Prussian War. So I kind of wanted it to be, you know, a teaching thing, but also an entertaining game. And that's the key. Right. I mean, bottom line, it's a game. Right. And it has to be fun to play. Mm-hmm. And yeah, for sure. So I did try to do that. So I appreciate that. And going back to Koenig. So now Koenigsgratz is, yes, that would be the next game by GMT using the at any cost system. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm having a brain fart here. It, it's um, Joe Yaust and Dave Bolt. Okay. Started working on that. Mm-hmm. And so they actually have a rule. The rule set's done, mm-hmm. and they had everything drawn up, and they tested it and all that. It's just a matter of me taking this huge document, honing it down, and then we have to create scenarios and play test it. Mm-hmm. So it's just a matter of me. I don't know, people have to realize that these big war games, they are a lot of work. Yes. They are a ton of work. Not only... You have to get all the historical stuff right and the game mechanics right, but the scenarios have to be tested, and there have to be a lot of scenarios to make the game entertaining. It can't just be one situation you play over again. You want a lot of options. You want different size scenarios. Yep. So balancing all that and getting everything to you know to get the special rules for each scenario working—it's a lot of work to do a big historical war game. Yeah, the 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 thing about that is that I can't imagine the amount of time you guys had to spend playing those scenarios over and over and over again, right? I mean, it, yeah. that's that's a real a real limitation to getting these games out the door, right? Because, I mean, I think there's a lot of people who have the patience and, and sort of the dedication to make the game and write the rules, and they have this vision in their head, but then that's the game, right? They just put it in a box and it goes, and then it's then you play it and you think, oh, there's so many good ideas here, but you know, it need to be developed and it certainly need to be balanced and play tested. And that's, I think, where you get the, the, I think that's where, I think there are are a lot of decent ideas floating around, but the number that actually get what they deserve in terms of uh, play testing and and, and balancing and and rules honing is, is, I think, is very, uh, very much a smaller, smaller subset there. Yeah, there's no question that there's games that are just thrown out there and they, they are kind of depending on the public to play test it for them and balance it for them. And that's why a lot of them have miles and miles of errata. Right. Um, you know, with the smaller game companies, it's it's a little harder to get all that place. To, like, for example, for GMT, uh, for the Plum Island Horror, mm-hmm. I, we had, God, 50 play testers or something like that. Wow. I mean, they, you could they can draw in groups of people who are willing to play test your game and spend a lot of time play testing them on the, with the smaller games or the smaller companies, it's a little harder to get that crew together. Now I got, I got really lucky because the most fearful sacrifice, which I did for flying pig game, that's mm-hmm. a big Gettysburg game. Yep. I had a really dedicated hardcore crew of Fred, Claude, um, uh, Zeke and Steve, who were all developers for a lot of blind swords games. And they, they played tested the living daylights out of that hmm. thing, and thankfully, I mean, having a bunch of guys that'll do that is I mean, it's invaluable. It, yeah. It's, so all I would do. Well, it pays so well, I, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and um, so we even got into a rhythm where once I got the game functioning the way I wanted it to function, it to function, and played a couple of scenarios myself. At that point, then all I'm doing is I'm actually. Updating the rules, designing the scenarios, sending them out. They're playing the game, mm-hmm. right? Feeding me back. Yep. I'm fixing the rules, fixing the scenarios, and then moving on to the next scenario. 
So I legitimately have not played my own game for the, like the last six months of its life wow. before it was published. And by the way, that's also why a lot of designers, well, I, maybe, maybe not a lot of designers, but I, I don't think I've ever played, well, I can't say ever, I've hardly ever played one of my own games after it's been published. Really? Yeah. Because I'm just burnt, I'm just burned out. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> I, just, I mean, yeah. I, I assume, but I assume you're playing prototype copies, right? So, is, wouldn't it be nice to get out the the actual production thing and just see how? Nice oh, I it have is? I have the production. Yeah, yeah, copies. sure. You wouldn't want to. Some put... of them are still in shrink, believe it or not. <laughs> okay, there you go. <laughs> and um, yeah, sometimes you know when somebody asks you obviously to play the game, hmm. I, I would do that. Of yeah. course. Well, if you ever come out here, uh, we'll play. I will. I will insist that you play uh, uh, at any cost. Mets uh, on the. I got a big set. Uh, I think I showed you mm -hmm. some some photos of these big counters. I, uh, Bill Alderman, a guy down in Virginia, yes. uh, he goes under big board gaming. He. Uh, he I met uh, him. Yeah, yeah. He's he's. He, I, I met him at Prescon, and his he does amazing work. He yes. had some of the. Uh, what was it? Was it the? Uh, it was the Worthington. Oh God, I, I can't remember which one. The American Revolution games, I think, mm -hmm. but they had these gigantic sets. Yeah. Set up. And I was like, Oh my God, I, I would buy that just to have it. Yeah. It's just, yeah. you know, they're, oh. they're great sets, and I have and I have one of your uh, one of yours on there. It's the it's the at any cost Mets, and it it just sets up beautifully. And that map, I got to tell you, that map for that game is so beautifully done, and it uh, on a big rollout sheet that takes you know yep. four feet by six feet. It just looks stupendous, and you. Oh yeah, that's that's uh, Terry. Terry leads from Terry uh, GMT. Oh, yeah. uh, he really nailed that. He yeah. really nailed it. And it's interesting because you know I use a lot of my stuff. I use Rick, the late Rick Barber, mm -hmm. who we all miss, of course. Yes. And uh, but Terry, Terry really nailed the feel of that map and that era yeah. perfectly. Yeah. yeah, it's a it's a great. I just I love looking at that map. Uh, I love the. I love the counter art. The counter art is great. It really evokes the, you know, these that that was the time. It was sort of they were kind of Napoleonic still. They were in their in their uniforms. Yep. It was uh, it was a really different uh, a really different era, and, and it really comes across in the counters. It's, just, it's a beautiful game, but um, but the you know the I I, I always deferred because I'm a miniatures geek mm -hmm, too. Mm -hmm. So I love little soldiers on my counters. Mm -hmm. I mean that's that just if I can get that done, I want to get it done. Yeah. Especially for a game like that, because as you point out, that that's one of the first things that attracted me to the Franco-Prussian War. I looked at these paintings and these. Uh, uh, there was an old Rob Markham game called Blood and Iron that I loved mm -hmm. by Three W, and that's what really got me interested. I'm like, my God, look at these guys! They <laughs> they're dressed like Napoleonic, yeah. and, you know, and they're they got Mitchellus machine guns and and rifles and all this stuff. This yeah. is so cool. Yeah. yeah it's <laughs> And, uh, yeah, it, it definitely – so, it, you know, if I had to do it with any game, it would be a game like that because, again, it, part of it is a teaching thing like, hey, look how neat this period looks. Yeah. you got to look at the counters. Yeah. Well, now, how – so you were talking about the playtesting. I mean, Konigratz is going to be pretty big, right? I mean, that's a – isn't that a bigger battle than than either of those? Well, well, the good thing about it is it's, it's one battle. It, uh -huh. At any cost, it's actually technically – well, two big battles, but it's also wraps into that three-day campaign. Yes, which right? is actually a great feature of the game. But, uh, but yeah, Conor, but the, the the size of Konigratz is is well. What? How does it compare to? How does it compare to either one of those battles in the that that are at any cost? Um, off the top of my head, I don't remember. It is about. 
trying to think now because you're talking about the entirety it's basically the entirety of the Austrian army and the right. entirety of the Prussian army mm-hmm. at the time so yeah. however so you're talking about a truly pivotal grandiose battle mm-hmm. with almost all the troops that each side had right in one battle yeah so I don't know it was like 120,000 Austrians or something like yeah, that it's a big battle. Uh, so I would say it's a larger battle than Gravelot St. Privat um I, you know, to be honest with you, I have to look. I don't know if it's going to be the same size map or not, or if it's going to be two maps. Yeah. Because it was a pretty wide area. Yeah. It's but, interesting. It's, it's, I, I didn't realize this. You know, those battles were bigger. All those battles were bigger than Gettysburg. Yes. yes. All, all of them. All, I, the, the, it, it, right. And it's amazing when you think about it that this, these battles, all this stuff happened at the time, either closely before, during, or after the Civil War. Right. So you put it in that context... You know, it's always the great what if. Like, what if could Robert E. Lee have beat the Prussian army? We don't know. <laughs> I wish we could have do that, right? You know, like, well, you could put so them on cool. the same map. Yeah, it's 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 uh, yeah. it's, uh, it's it's an interesting, but the the, te- the technology change. There's actually a fairly significant amount of technology change from from uh, just from Königgrätz to 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 uh, or from yeah from Königgrätz to to the Franco-Prussian War because you, you, there are no machine guns, no mitrailleuse in. Uh, in no. Kungratz, are there? And, and the, I and think the fact, artillery's better in, in the Franco-Prussian, significantly better. Right. Well, what happened, so the Austrians technically had better artillery. So this is the weird thing about it. It actually was the polar opposite of what the Franco-Prussian war was mm. for the Prussians. So the Austrians had technically better artillery, but the Prussians had the better rifles. They had the Dreezy needle gun, mm-hmm. right? Well, the Austrians were still using muskets. Right. So they had an advantage in that sense. Then you come to the Franco-Prussian War, all all of a sudden the needle gun is outclassed by the Chasse-Poe, but the Prussians, because they got outclassed in the earlier war by artillery, upgraded their artillery, so now their artillery was better than the French artillery. It's such an interesting period of history. As you see, this, this, everything's ratcheting up, right, and it's this arms race type Mm -hmm. of thing. And, um, you know, if the French had used the Mitrelus properly, and, you know, I know a lot of people criticize them historically for not using it properly, but let's face it, if you, if you... If you put yourself in their shoes mm-hmm. in 1870, they just looked at it. It's a wheeled ordinance, piece of ordinance. Right. So it goes with the artillery. Right. You know, they weren't thinking ahead enough to go, well, no, you want it up front with the infantry so they can mow down the infantry as it's coming across. Yeah. Right. Um, no, very interesting stuff, though. Yeah. Yeah. So so you have that in the in the pipeline. What else do you have in the pipeline? Because. You've got now. You were you were going all off about uh, Euro games and how you don't like them. And you, you, you aren't you designing a Euro game? What's going on with that? You even mentioned it. <laughs> uh, if you're talking about the Plum Island yeah. Horror, uh-huh. um, that is not a Euro game. God no. Um, however, it does use. Well, I won't say any Euro game. Well, maybe Euro game mechanics. So. The Plum Island Horror is a horror adventure game, obviously. It is kind of my uh, uh, retake, redoing of Dawn of the Zeds, mm-hmm. that feel anyway. Yep. But I designed Zeds, what, 10 years ago or yeah, something like least, that? Yeah. And since then, I've learned a lot more about designing games, so I always wanted another shot at it. Mm-hmm. Um, Dawn of the Zeds itself is kind of, I'm really not technically involved in it anymore. It's kind of... Flown is flown the coop, so okay. to speak. Right? Right. Uh-huh. Um, you know, Alan's taking that over. Basically, he's doing the expansions for it. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Alan Emmerich. You know, Plum- and, what's that? Alan Emmerich. Yeah. Yeah. And 
So Gene Billingsley had always told me, even back in the day, that he wanted, he loved Dawn of the Zeds, and he wanted to do something like that for GMT. And I'm talking about eight years ago or something mm-hmm. like that. So finally, things came around, and we've discussed some, doing something like that again, and that's what that's resulted in Plum Island Horror. The thing about Plum Island Horror is, as I've said on many other uh, casts, is that I, I, and I've told you, I play a lot of different games. Mm-hmm. I actually have Zombicide. Uh, invader set up on my table. Yeah, I'm looking yeah. behind you in the camera, and you, yeah. I was like, those, are those, those don't look like Napoleonic miniatures to me there, Captain. <laughs> yeah, with tentacles and claws. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I play a lot. I love deck building games, and I love, you know, yeah. uh, dudes on a map games and dungeon crawls and things like that. Mm-hmm. And so now what I've done is, uh, so for Plum Island Horror, I've taken a lot of mechanics, and I do this for my newer war games, too, which I guess we could talk about later, too. Yeah. It's... it's, it's it's take some of those mechanics that I've learned and they're so good, well done in these other games and say, well, why can't they be used for a military, uh, a historical simulation game, mm-hmm. right? A war game. Mm-hmm. Why not? So in the case of the Plum Island Horror, I even wrote down some stuff because so, I knew I was going to forget all this. Okay. It's got a, a custom combat dice with an exploding die, the idea I got from Descent, mm-hmm. right? Okay. It's got uh, variable turn order cards that I got from Aeon's End. Okay. It's got uh, a follow mechanic that I got from Tiny Epic Galaxies. Following is a great mechanic. I don't know if we talked about this last time, but following is I, I do my turn, mm-hmm. and then starting with the player on my left, they can each do something during my turn. Right? Yes, that player involvement. It's, it's constantly let, get the it's players involved. Yeah, player involvement, which is the key. And it also is a strategical thing because your, your opportunities pop up at a different time and the situation on the board changes. Mm-hmm. So what it does is not only keeps people involved, but it keeps you involved in like what's going on on the table because you've got to pay attention. Yeah. As your follow comes around. Now, the thing about the follow action in Plumline and Horror is that it's also a push-your-luck thing because if you do follow, you have a risk of creating a bad event. Oh, so okay. it, it increases the interaction between the players because as you want to follow, they might be yelling at you, don't do that because we can't afford something bad to happen. And you say, well, too bad. I want to do this. Uh-huh. And then, of course, you know, it's that constant push your luck as, as the tension ratchets right. it up the mm-hmm. table. So and what was the other thing I did? Um, oh, from Eldritch Horror, they have these wonderful uh, search cards where, you know, if you go into an area in Eldritch Horror, you pick up these cards and it basically has a small story on it where right. you make multiple choices, mm-hmm. right? Yep. This is happening. If you do this, then this is going to happen. If you do that, this is going to happen. Uh-huh. So we did that with the search cards where you're looking around on the island and these events occur to you and you have to decide mm-hmm. which, which choice am I going to make, what chance am I going to take, that kind of thing. So in the case of Plum Island Horror, it is... And, and the other thing is that it does still have a, a lot of wargaming aspects to it. So I'm I'm trying trying to create something that's probably impossible to create, which is a game that appeals to grognards and their families at the same time. Yeah, so it has that's a, a tough. That's everybody a tough thing. Yeah. Where the grognards like it because combat is involved. You know, you have to get in there. Mm-hmm. And, but there's enough other stuff going on that gives you more of a horror feel or a. a you know, card manipulation feel so that other people can enjoy it as well. Mm-hmm. Now, this is it's, it's cooperative, right? Because Zed's, isn't Zed's cooperative? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah. You can play it with up to four players, and uh, it'll solo well as, as well, of course. Right. Okay. So <clears throat> that I keep that's on the P500 now, isn't it? 
It is. It's up to 860 Okay, so you're well over. So you're, it's just whenever. Yeah, it's just getting into art now. Yeah, whenever Gene can get the uh, get the elves to get uh, get to work on it, then it's one of those. They have, yeah, they have so much stuff going. It's on. crazy how much stuff they, they have going on. It's just I. Oh, I don't know how they do it. I don't know. Well, I don't. They don't. Sometimes they don't do it because I've been waiting for Vance von Bory's <laughs> uh, Eastern Front series to get. Uh, for like six years, it's like guys, come on. I mean, it's it's, it's like, yeah. but I, I mean, I get. It. I'm 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 just giving a hard time because it's 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 it, it, there's so much you got to do and 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 I mean they don't have that many people and you know us you know the Gronyards are are, are terribly uh, uh, picky so you know you you screw something up and then you're going to hear about it for you know to the end right. of time so you just you, and and stuff still slips. I mean, just it's. Uh, I, I get where they're coming from, but man, they have so much stuff going on. It's, it's well, it's, and a project like Plum Island Horror is especially tough because you're talking about all original art. You know, they're they're not they're not just doing NATO uh, right uh, NATO counters and a map anymore. right, this, and they can't get stock like, photos actually, of, of of tanks right. and, they, and yeah. They need right exactly. They need original art. It's a modern island. Mm-hmm. And the horrors have to look a certain way, and then okay. every every person. So you have five factions and each faction has six units and each unit is different so right. there's a distinct piece of art for mm-hmm. every single unit yeah that's a pain i mean it's a lot it's, it's a it, lot i mean work. it'll be it'll be worth it when it comes out but i can yeah i can see how how much uh i've seen you know terry has some of the prototype stuff he's done and it's gorgeous it's yeah. great cool it looks like 1950s pulp fictiony type yeah. of art yeah it I, looks great i like that style yeah that's a, that's a neat style yeah well, mm-hmm. <clears throat> so tell me now. You were you were, you were saying about uh, how you're putting some of these mechanics into the the new war games you're doing. What new war games are you doing besides the Konigrats thing? Is you know, uh, yeah. So the, yeah, the Konigrats thing will just be at any cost. Right, system. right, right. So what do I got coming? I got so much. I actually had to write down everything I got coming out because I said I'm going to forget something. That's amazing. Uh huh. So uh, let's see. Uh, right now, I'm working on Miracle at Dunkirk, okay. which is the upgraded, deluxified version of a Spoiled Victory. Yeah, that's the one. That's what that was. A spoiled Victory is from White Dog Games, just so. Uh, right, uh, right. So this is just a more elaborate, more detailed version of the Dunkirk uh, mm-hmm. evacuation. Yeah. Um, so that I'm working on that now for Worthington. I got coming out something called. Um, Death by Flags and Trumpets. Oh. And it's it's World War One Western Front, 1914. Mm-hmm. So it uses a system. It's a box-to-box system with the units. Actually, they're, uh, they're, they don't have factors per se, but they roll different dice depending on how good they are at something. So okay. they can roll anything from a D6 to a D20. Oh, wow. Depending on how good they are. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the key... The key mechanic in that is it's a it's a variation of what they call in the uh, in the well I don't say the Euro game community mm-hmm. the the adventure game community is the river system which is used for Conan and I think uh, Batman Gotham City mm-hmm. so it's basically a track with multiple spaces on there and each space costs something different to activate it's okay. going from low to high mm-hmm. so in my game what you do is you put if you're the Germans, you're putting your German army markers in each of these spaces, and that's how much it costs you to activate that army. Okay. You activate the army, you pick the army up off that track, mm-hmm. put it at the end of the track, and everything slides down. So now if you want to activate that army again, it's now at the end of the track and really expensive uh, to activate. Uh-huh. 
Okay, so, and then if you would combine that system, so what it does is it makes you play all your armies kind of evenly, mm -hmm. right? Or if you really want to double down and spend all your command points to activate one army twice, it's going to cost you everything. Right. So it's this constant game of, you know, who am I activating? Where are they in the, in the progression? Mm -hmm. But I have some strategy and tactics cards that can switch that up if you play them at the right time, where maybe okay. activating that army a second time is a little cheaper than you thought. You okay. know? So that, that's coming out from Worthington. That, everything's running behind in Worthington because, of, again, well, because of everything. Yeah, you know, right. how it goes, you know. So, but it sounds like the, uh, it might be on Kickstarter in January, maybe. Okay. Okay. Depending on how the scheduling goes. All right. Um, what else I got? I got leave. Sorry, I did that. Uh, for Revolution, I've got a game called Hell's Half Acre coming out next year sometime, which is the Battle Stones River. That's basically a blind sword civil war game. It's my contribution. Okay. We have a lot of designers designing different game. You know, different uh, parts of that series. Yeah, there. there's so a Manassas game. Got, there's Kernstown. Uh, there's Thunder right, of the Ozarks. Blood, games. Uh, Matt Ward just did that Bull Run game. Yep. Uh, Steve Carey is actually doing a game um, yeah. on South Mountain, which I was very happy to see. Steve and I met years and years ago. Great guy. He got out of gaming for a while, and now he's getting back into it, mm -hmm. so that's great. He's the designer, of course, so We Must Tell the Emperor yep. and Multi Siege. That's the best, by the way. The, the We Must Tell the Emperor, I think, was one of the best uh, States state to Siege games. That's a really, really good uh, take I, on I it. I totally agree. I totally agree. Yeah. Uh, people are clamoring to have him read, have somebody else publish that. So yeah, I, do it. I mean, Mostly uh, has it with somebody. I'm not sure who. Yeah, yeah. all these things that, uh, that, uh, yeah, that got got kicked out of the Victory Point Games thing needs need to get back on somebody's radar oh i agree i agree there's there were some great games that were done by vpg yeah yeah uh so for white dog i'm working on um right now i'm doing a science fiction game for them i do a lot of science fiction so it, it, just to parlay off before mm -hmm. doing big historical war games takes a lot of time a lot of effort mm -hmm. there's I got books all over my tables, and I'm looking up arrival dates for reinforcements and all that other kind of stuff. So I like to design a horror game once in a while or a sci-fi game or a fantasy game, something where, as a designer, you can just design the game as, as best as you can and make it as fun as you can and then justify everything later. So I, I know, especially for a science fiction game, I'll come up with a rule... And Fred will say to me, you know, we're playing it, and he'll say, really, that can happen on that? And I said, you know this planet, Fred. Okay. <laughs> suns and weird magnetic fields. So you know this can happen, right? Yeah. Did you, didn't you read up on your Encyclopedia Galactica? That's you know? <laughs> great. Oh, I love that. So you can justify anything, and that's the fun part of it, is, is sure. building, you actually build the fiction afterwards, and mm -hmm. you see how the game's working, you go, oh, well, that's because these aliens have this particular uh, yeah. aspect to them. So that's always so. Uh, yeah, so I'm doing a, a game called Vultures Lead the Way. The Vultures are basically space rangers. Mm -hmm. that, that's the title, and they're called Vultures, and it's basically in magnificent style in space. Oh, they, they're 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 you're pushing your luck. You're pushing them up a field, and the aliens are sitting there, and they're trying to blow up Mars. Mm -hmm. So there's a ticker going off. As this this doomsday device is about to blow up Mars, and you're trying to rush across the field there and get in there and yeah. stop it before it blows up. Well, that's a great system, and it sounds like I mean that's a that's a system that I mean if for the listeners who aren't uh, familiar, in Magnificent Style is a great 
great game about Pickett's Charge. I didn't know he could make a game about Pickett's Charge until uh, Herman did it, but uh, it's a <laughs> it's a it's a it's a great exactly push your luck, and you got to push your luck a lot to get across that field. And uh, I can imagine how people who aren't really interested in Pickett's Charge or the Civil War, but uh, like push your luck games, might respond to a science fiction setting where you just uh, you know, hey, these are aliens and we're fighting them. So I'd be interested mm-hmm. to see how that. Uh, plays out in the in the science fiction realm right so that should be out in january or so depending on how things go then after that i'm going to do a game on france in uh, 1940 yeah to we, them. you discussed that we talked about that a little bit i'm, I'm i really yeah. i'm not a game designer so i can't offer you any help but i i i uh, <laughs> i i'm really fascinated to see how you uh how you approach well, you the problem me to do it you actually compelled me to do that <laughs> yeah well I, I i i might have said some things but uh but the thing is it's you know i don't have any i don't have any answers i just know that it's a great uh i was i was uh the, actually it was over the summer i was doing a lot of yard work uh and i always had uh you know the headphones on ear pods whatever i listen to a lot of audiobooks and i listened to some books about the just france 40 uh and how you know profoundly uh sort of confused the French were in terms of what they thought was possible and what actually happened mm-hmm. and where the Germans were coming from and what the uh, how the campaign developed and I just I, I feel like that's that's such a possibility for uh, a solo game where the system kind of throws things at you and you just sort of have to, to figure out what's happening yes. but I, but but I don't I just I don't know how you do a mechanic no, that way I'm actually really glad that you pushed me into looking at this because it's actually I didn't know much about that campaign, mm-hmm. I still don't. I'm, I'm just initially researching mm-hmm. it. But you're right. The, the fascinating thing about that, it, it's almost like the Franco-Prussian War in the sense that you think it's this lopsided, you know, just overrate all the Germans or the Prussians and right. underrate all the French. But you're, it doesn't. It's not that, right? Because the French tanks actually technically were tougher than right. the German tanks yep. at mm-hmm. the time, right? Yeah. So you got this whole. Uh, this whole, how did this happen? Mm-hmm. I guess exactly. that's it. You know, yeah, it's, yeah. it's like the Franco-Prussian War too. You, you're like, well, how did this happen? The French army wasn't that bad, you right? Know? Like, right. And right. the Prussians made a ton of mistakes in the Franco-Prussian oh, War. Oh, they it's, did, yeah. It's unbelievable how many mistakes they made. Yep. Same thing in World War Two, right? Same mm-hmm. thing in 1940. You go like, well, oh my God, these Germans just kept. They, they uh, was it Guderian who who basically told Hitler that his message was garbled and didn't yes. listen to him? Yeah, right? I, you know? I, I can't. Go. Hello, hello. I can't. can't, can't I'm, you're breaking up there. You're breaking up. Yeah. So I'm going like, wow, that takes some balls to do that. You know, yeah, like right. what happens if they get caught? Right. So the whole idea of the game is capturing the essence of exactly what that is, right? Which is the German kind of has to well push his luck, right? He's like he's pushing, he's pushing, and so I thought. As we discussed, you know, if you do it as a solitaire game where you are playing the allies right. and the German system is is doing the pushing, right? right? Mm-hmm. So I was trying to come up with a way, um, and again, I told you, like, I got this inspiration from playing a game called Galaxy Defenders mm-hmm. and also the D&D Adventure board games mm-hmm. where the monsters, the baddies, mm-hmm. actually move by large tile, right? Mm-hmm. In other words, they go tile to tile they jump from tile to tile Mm -hmm. whereas you move within the tiles Mm -hmm. because there's smaller squares right right? so a tile might be nine squares sure your guys are moving tile by tile space by space right yep and the monsters are jumping by tiles so they're appearing Mm -hmm. so i'm thinking god that would be a great way to do the germans where the germans are just kind of like 
appearing on a tile, mm-hmm. and you, your guys are moving in, on squares. So you're moving slower, reacting slower. Right. So to just use that mechanic to represent what you're, what you're saying is where the French are like, well, where'd they come from? Right. right? Uh-huh. Kind of capture that essence where all of a sudden the Germans are on a tile behind you and you have to do something about it. <laughs> sure. So that's where I was going with that, but I couldn't, I couldn't quite put it together and so it'll get there though. Yeah. So is that what, so are you, are you changing design? Uh, I mean, are you, are you rethinking the whole idea of the solitaire French or do you, are you going to, uh, Oh no, no, I'm no. going to stay with that because so, I'm not sure how many solitaire games have been done on France and 40. I think there's one that was done on the, uh, what, what's the, um, the high flying dice uh, annual uh, was it against the odds I think right against the odds yeah that uh, that's they the had uh, an annual I think where they had four battles they had, yes take, it's yeah the roads to roads to Paris yes if, right. yeah, I think like, one of those games might have been solitaire, solitaire? okay I've, I've it's sitting on the shelf I haven't I haven't picked that thing up I'm in not a sure while. if it's solitaire as the Germans or solitaire as the Allies but I do, I was just thinking that being solitaire as the Allies would be a different take yeah right? and it, it would be but a lot look, yeah. If anybody wants to figure out why I design, what I design, and all that, it's only – it's basically just to do something different. Yeah. I, you know, I didn't want to just do, you know, just slam out Hex Encounter War games with locking Zox and right. odds tables and all mm-hmm. that. Yeah. If I I've always figured from the beginning of this thing, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do things that are just different. Yeah. Right, well, a little outside the box type stuff, and that's why I did. Actually, to be honest with you, that's why I did it in magnificent style because I said, "Well, like, how can I make a game on Pickett's Charge and make it entertaining?" Yeah, that that was really just a challenge that I gave myself. Yeah, it's like people who design games on Little Bighorn, right? I mean, you know, like how do you do that, and make it entertaining? Yeah. Well, a couple people have. I mean, right, <laughs> right. Well, you can say your your it wasn't your grandmother who kind of designed uh, designed uh, in magnificent style. Oh, <laughs> well, she, yeah, it was the, uh, yeah, that's pretty, you remembered that. That's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, there was a, uh, when she used to come over from Germany, she played this game called Pig, which is a very simple dice game. Uh-huh. But it always stuck with me. It was just rolling two dice, and you, you could add the two dice together and continue adding your score. But if one of the two dice was a one, you'd lose whatever you accumulated that uh, for that roll, right. right? If you rolled snake eyes you'd go back to zero in your entire total, yeah. right? Uh-huh. It was as simple as that. But to me, that always was like, well, that's such a great push-your-luck mechanic. How can I use that in a game? And yeah. that's why the system is the system. Yeah, and it works great because, uh, you know, and, and you just you have to, then you have to just tune it so that, you know, you really have to. Because, you know, push-your-luck push games are up to the designer to decide how much luck is going to be necessary, right? Because you just make the, make the mm-hmm. board sufficiently difficult that, you know, I mean, you could make a push your luck game where you don't really need much luck, right? And you need right. a push your luck game where you need a ton of luck. And the the, right. the key is to, to, that's, you know, that's the sort of, that's the solitaire, that's one of the solitaire dilemmas is getting the game tuned to the point where it's not mm-hmm. easy, but it's not frustrating. So you think, ah, I just, this sucks. I'm, not, I'm never going to get through this. So I just forget. You're it. exactly right. And my, yeah, my number one rule about solitaire, well, my solitaire games mm-hmm. is it, I want you to lose at least two thirds of the time. Yeah. Let's put it that way. Right? Yeah. But you know that goes, and that just comes from my own experience in solitaire games, right? If I get a solitaire game or I set it up and I kick its ass on the first time, I don't take it out again, right? Because what am I, what am I aiming for? It, it has to have that the video game feel, right? Yes. Where you, you didn't beat that level, but boy, if I had only just done that differently, exactly. then I want to get right back in there and try it again, yeah. right? Yeah. 
So that was that was the whole. And you're right; it, it is hard to do, and it does require a lot of playtesting, yeah. which is what I'm doing now with bolters. Yeah, is just constantly playtesting and say, "Well, is this too easy? Is this too hard?" You know, okay. and and when you have a game like that, that depends so much. There's a lot of variability in there, so you got to make sure that you don't judge the whole game on maybe a string of really lucky yep. games or really bad lucky games. Right. The odd thing about Volters is interesting because I, when I was talking to Mike Kennedy at, at White Dog, mm-hmm. I mentioned you know dice, and he goes, "Oh no, we don't ship games with dice." So I said, "Oh, well, I don't want to do that to people, so I'm just going to design this game so it doesn't need dice." Oh. So yeah, so what it does, it has 27 action cards. Interesting. You, so you push your luck as you're flipping the card, and the card huh. instructs you what happens. Whoop. Depending on the type of unit. Well, that's a whole different. But th- see, that's a whole different mechanic, and that's interesting. That I don't know if, uh, how much you're following the latest stuff out of GMT, but um, uh, Carl Parody has—he's uh, you know the no retreat guy, and uh, right. he did uh, a new take on his Russian Front game, which is an area movement Russian Front game, but it's very—it's mm-hmm. no retreat style. Uh, yeah, it's absolute, absolute victory, war. Yeah, absolute war. Oh, absolute war. Right. And what he's done is he has his. CRT is is the cards, but he has like I think I counted them. There are thirteen different possible combat results. Like like hmm. there's you know there's attacker limited attacker, you know, you know stubbed his toe. Attacker has a bruised chin. Attacker kind of punched the other guy in the face. You know, attacker really you know <laughs> right. stomped on the you know guy. And and he's got right. all these different different things. And he has it all on the bottom of the card. So what you do is, you know, you pull a card, you look at the column that you're on, you know, your odds column, and you say, oh, uh, this is a this is a three to one. So that is a bloodbath, right? Okay, so that's fine. Mm-hmm. But here's the thing. That card has combat results for all the other, uh, you know, uh, odds columns. And you might say, oh, if I had, that has one of the really good results for the high odds. But mm-hmm. now it's in the discard pile, so I'm never going to get that defender captured result right. from the from that high odds until this thing gets reshuffled. So maybe I should not be going for those odds, right? I mean, you, you can you sort of there's a card counting aspect, right? Because it's not I, like Dutch. I, you know, I was just going to say the yeah. card counting aspect yeah. to that type of system, right? Which, <clears throat> yeah. So when uh, when I was playing with Fred, you know, he brought up the same point. Well, you know, this and that. So the way I got around that is. I ha- I use the cards from multiple resolutions. So originally I had a shuffle card in there, which is a pain in the neck, especially if you're not t- talking about a lot of cards. Right. Shuffling 27 cards is a pain in the neck. Right. So you you use the cards for the event, for what your result for your movement is, and also to generate a random number mm-hmm. from one to nine. Okay. So what the what the deck does is it kind of runs itself. It, it, it shovels itself because you're using the cards all the time, mm. right? So you're running through the card deck. So you can't count on a particular combat result coming up or a movement result coming up because you're actually you're zooming through the pile to resolve other things too. If it's only doing combat results, then yes, then you right. can shuffle card or something else. Or you just say to people, well, that's the way that system yeah. is. So mm-hmm. if you are smart enough to remember what was pulled and not pulled, that's to your credit. You know, right. you could do that right. too. But you're cycling so so fast for multiple things that you just don't you don't even know if another thing is going to come up for right. that particular purpose or not. Or yeah, it's and I think some with designers, 
I know what I'm starting to find out, and I guess what other designers too is, as much as I love rolling dice and mm-hmm. lots of dice, yeah. you do a zombicide all the time, right? Yeah. Uh, but it takes time to roll dice. Right. It's much faster to pull cards. Mm-hmm. Sure. As a matter of fact, in uh, uh, A Most Fearful Sacrifice, which basically is just a, a um, one level up for the blind sword system, mm-hmm. that uses doesn't use chits. It uses all cards. There's no ah, chip pulling. No chip pulls. So the, no, the chip pulling is the card pulling. Interesting. So the, on the card. So the advantage you get is card pulling is just naturally, or it's actually card flipping. Card flipping is naturally faster than digging through a bag or a cup looking for mm-hmm. a chip. You know how sure. people are, right? Yep, They'll yep. rummage around. Yep, 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 yep. Get this good, good and randomized. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. So, and the other thing is, so when you flip a card in a, in a Most Fearful Sacrifice and you get an event, the description for the events right on the card. Uh-huh. Okay. There's no looking it up. There's no tables you have to worry yep. about. The whole thing is just described to you. Got it. And on the commanders, the command table is right on the card. Hmm. So you're not looking anywhere else. Well, that's very useful. So, yeah, those kind of little shortcuts, you don't think it adds up. It adds up to a lot when you're talking about a multi-hour game. Yeah. Well, you especially pack off half hour just doing that. Yeah, well, you're also, it, it cuts down on the wear, right? One of the, my same friend that likes that, that is so enamored with blind swords, he says, you know, one of my, I can't remember which one it was, but one of his, his commanders in one of the games, he says that this guy's just getting worn out because he, <laughs> he has, you know, uh, he gets put back in the cup or something like that. So he just, that, that, that one keeps. Well, uh, you know what the solution to that is? What's that? I may have told you this last time, but I found out watching, uh-huh. watching a playthrough video of another game. Yeah. I think it was Lord of the Rings card game or something. Yeah. Is you put you put them in clear uh, coin capsules. Ah, uh, interesting. Okay. The coin, you know those coin holders, yep. you yep. know the, yep. the coin collectors. Oh yeah, use? absolutely. Yeah. Right. You can get them on Amazon really cheap. Mm-hmm. You, you Yo, put yeah. the shit in there, and then and plus it feels a lot better. They clang around in there, yeah. you know, and they don't wear out. Oh, cool. Okay. Well, that's uh, okay. You, you guys uh, who are listening, get the get the coin get the coin capsules because. Uh, you may be you may be uh, otherwise subject to differential wear on your counters, and it's going to uh, <laughs> it's gonna it's gonna it's gonna tweak your game because you'll know which what you're feeling when you're starting to pull it out of the cup. So so what is that? So that's your so you you have a you have a quite a full uh, you have Volters you have uh, you have Conigrats you have uh, Spoiled Victory update you have uh, this France Forty game you have Plum Island Horror you just I, yeah. I mean what. How, well, most fearful sacrifice. Most fearful sacrifice. That's out, done, so, though, right? Yeah. Most fearful sacrifice, I think, is 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 done, and I, I keep getting things from Mark uh, Walker saying, you know, it's it's, it's so, on the ship. It's on the ship. <laughs> it's basically on the ship. So, yeah. so you're you're yeah. uh, you, you can you hopefully can sort of, that'll get here. Yeah. I don't know. God, I, I don't. I hate to predict when anything's going to get here because I always get. Oh, it's yelled at. Well, it's, 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 it's <laughs> yeah. all sorts of stuff can happen, right? I mean, I think that the, the way yeah. things are out there right now, that it just you. The stuff's going to show up when it shows up, and there's nothing you can really do about it, right? I mean, it's you can you can right. complain all you want, but the stuff, you know, the yeah. ship's not going to dock, and the, they're not going to get it off until they do, and then that's that's life. But um, so, so I actually can't wait for people to see it. It's uh, I have a prototype, mm-hmm. and it weighs more than Armageddon War. Wow, old school tactical. It's immense, but it's so cool looking. Yeah. I can't wait for people to see it and play it. I hope they enjoy it. Yeah. Uh, the, the other thing we're going to do for Mark Walker after all this, all the smoke settles for that, is we're actually working on a deluxe version of Invaders from Dimension X. Oh. So we're going to do, we're going to do Invaders, uh, Space Vermin, Colossi, and Fred's working on a fourth installment called Planet of the Moss Men. <laughs> and all four are going to be like deluxified and you know given a 
some new artwork and primmed up a little bit, and they're gonna he's gonna sell it all as one big deluxe package for people to just get it in one shot. Wow. Well, we're gonna put enough new stuff in there, so if like you already have all those, you you still, you'll still buy. It. Yeah, I get it. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's awesome. Oh yeah, that, man, that's cool. Um, kind of, oh, I'm working with Nuts Publishing. Yes. I'm also doing so. I'm just the guy who can't say no. What okay. can I say? That's fine. So they reached out to me on Facebook and they said, hey, you know, you want to do something with us? We're looking for. I said, well, uh, sure. What are you looking for? You know, like, what What do you I don't want to just do something and then you don't want it. You know, mm-hmm. what are you guys looking to do? Right. So they said, we'd like to do a cooperative war game, mm-hmm. which is not any or at least many out there. Mm-hmm. And I said, okay, well, doing a historical cooperative war game will be a little tough. Mm-hmm. How about a sci-fi war game? Okay. So they love that idea. So mm-hmm. we're almost done. Uh, we have to get the artwork done. But so mm-hmm. it's a game called Assault on Zoltar, and it's a cooperative. Each player is a is a company of mercenary soldiers mm-hmm. who are going out and fighting, uh, invading the planet of Zoltar. They okay. take on the Zoltarians. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, they're mining this, uh, this, uh, ah, it's a whole big story. Okay. They're mining this mineral and we want the mineral because it'll, it'll, you know, uh, uh, fuel our spaceships sure. and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, so it is a true cooperative war game. It is a war game. It has all sci-fi. Every company is different. Mm-hmm. So they have different machines, you know, different tanks, different mm-hmm. infantry, sure. each with different capabilities mm-hmm. and you play together. So you're entering the board together. You fight. There's six scenarios. And the Zoltarians will defend, and there's different missions that, you know, sometimes you want to go in there and go seize, you know, the, the supply, or you want to go keep guys from escaping. You know, it's different, different scenario. Each scenario has a different feel to it, so it's mm-hmm. not just always the same, uh, mechan- you know, same flow. Mm-hmm. So it's actually working out great. Fred and I are playing on a tabletop simulator now. We're playing through a campaign and where you, you keep your casualties and you got to buy you know, uh, repair points to fix them up for the next battle and all that. And it's actually really working out well. So you can play up to three players together on the same side in a war game. That's pretty, that's pretty nice. The question is, uh, is, is there any aspect of the cooperative, uh, part of the game that requires you to have multiple players or could it just, could you do it solo? I mean, that, oh, no, you can do it solo. Yeah, yeah. because that, that's that's an interesting thing about the cooperative cooperative games that I that I I, um, I always wondered whether how you would do a game where you had to have. I mean, there are ways to do it, right, with hidden information. But most people feel that that hidden information is just a, a sort of a, a artificial handicap. Um, the only way to really do a cooperative game that where you sort of have to have other players is if you have a trader mechanic, right? Where you're some somebody is not really actually cooperating. Oh well, yeah, that's not really that's that's more in the semi-cooperative realm mm-hmm. where you're playing cooperatively, but you're going to end up with a winner. Right. Right. So actually, I, I I broached that subject with them, and they and I said, well, you know, do you want it to be semi-cooperative where mm-hmm. I'm playing the best? Like we all lose together. Right. right? So the idea of semi-coop is that if if you your team doesn't win, you all lose. Nobody gets anything. Right. But if you're playing it semi-cooperatively, we're working together, and if we win as a team, then we find.
find out who did the best. So then you get that little selfish aspect mm-hmm. in there too. Right. Maybe you're going for certain things that might not help the team win, but might help you win if your team does win. Right. So they wanted to go. No, let's do a straight, straight up cooperative. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, yeah. we didn't want that too much of that you know stabbing in the back thing going on. But I, you know, I, I get what you're saying. I mean, some people like that, and it, you know, if the game does well, we may end up coming up with a mode where you could do that. Yeah, yeah. That's 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 a, that's. A, I mean, it's a tough. It's a tough line to sort of walk because uh you know i in the in the old days one one of my favorite old sort of games was this game called titan that took you know at least yeah six to eight hours to play and you could have and if you played a six-player game uh then somebody was going to be knocked out in the first 30 minutes and so right we didn't find but when we were you know back in those days we didn't find that at all uh onerous right i mean it's just like we all got together. Somebody got knocked out, and then that person would hang out, play stuff on the computer, and, exactly. and, and kibitz with everybody, right? And be like, you know, I'm going to get anybody need yeah. another beer. Yeah, here you go, whatever. Yeah, uh, but and that's I, a that's a bozo no no these days. Oh yeah, you know, yeah, you can't. You, you don't can't you do do, don't do player elimination. Nope, nope, <laughs> nope. So, so yeah, it's it's just it's it's interesting how the how the tastes have sort of have changed, and I and and. It has, and you know, a lot of it. Well, the solo thing obviously has to do with the pandemic, and and in the war game community, guys getting older and right. not having their game group anymore, that right. kind of thing. Um, but yet, the cooperative thing. I mean, honestly, uh, when I was back in New York before I moved to Tennessee, I had a group of four guys. We played every weekend. We never played a war game. We always played the new cooperative type because we just enjoyed the dynamics of all playing together and it's a common goal. So it's it's a, just a different aspect of gaming where you're you're working on this puzzle together rather than against each other. And you know, yes, we played some competitive games. I'm not saying we always played that, but we really particularly enjoyed the cooperative thing because we were kind of like puzzle solving together. It's almost like a social deduction game, but more well, wargamey, you know, you're you're fighting a common foe, a big baddie, a big monster, whatever. Um, and that, and I think wargaming uh, is is a good ground to to bring some of those newer ideas in, right? And 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 open up wargaming. I mean, David Thompson's done that with his his Undaunted with with deck building and and um, who else am I thinking of? Um, well, Volko Runke, of course, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, the whole idea is to get games out, get war gaming or conflict simulation, whatever you want to call it, mm-hmm. out to more, make it more accessible to more people. And one of those things is no player elimination, don't have the games last eight hours. Right, you know, <laughs> right, right. Right? You know, people, you're looking at normally two-hour windows, like I can play a game with my girlfriend, but after about an hour and a half to two hours, he's like, okay, you yeah, know, I've had enough of this now, you know. Yeah. So it, there's part of that too. You know, people don't have as much time, and you know, in some cases that they, you know, it's funny. I I'm retired now, and I actually have less time to do. Stuff. I'm busy all the time. I think I'm busier now than when I was working for a yeah, living. It's yeah. it's crazy. Yeah. Well, that's it. I mean, I think that what you say to, to address all those things. A yes, I think new ideas are are great because you know you look at some of these. You know, in the old, I look at some of these old games, right, where where everything just got solved in the same way, and it, and a lot of it was really tedious. You know, with the you know, it had a lookup chart, right, where you rolled two dice and then you looked at a thing, and right. it was you know, it didn't matter what it was, whether it was combat or it was some random event or whether it was you know, this or that, or supply. You know, we just roll two dice, look on the thing, roll a die, look look on the thing, and now that there's so many, 
when a component manufacturer is cheaper now, you can put cards in a game where I think Mark Herman had a big thing about how Magic the Gathering sort of made it cheaper to make cards so you could mm-hmm. actually have them produced and, and sell a game that didn't cost, you know, $100. Right. Um, but, uh, and but, what you say about math is interesting because that's one of the aspects, too, that I try to avoid is, is if you have to ask people to do a lot of math, you, you've got to turn off a whole lot of people. So you may know, you may have noticed, I don't know, but blind swords do not use die roll modifiers. I use column shifts. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's that's. Okay, there's no there's no such thing as a die roll modifier because I don't want people sitting there figuring that out. Mm-hmm. Uh, moving left and right on a table is easier because once you get to that table, you're just rolling the dice, reading the dice, and reading the result. Go, yeah, you don't go. read the result and then adjust the die roll and then move a column and you know. So part of that is is because of that. That's why I don't use odds either for most of my games. Right, right, right. Well, I'm 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 uh, I've been toying with this whole idea. I think I've actually had a breakthrough just as as uh, we were getting on the the podcast. I thought of I I went down and found all these. I was I was trying to do it. I'm trying to design a game. Are you familiar with the the uh, the mechanic of roll and write? Yes. Okay. So I wanted to make a roll and write war game, where. You just roll yep. dice, and then it's like a Yahtzee thing, right? Where, where I think I have, I think I figured it out, but I want to do a Kursk game, and I want to do Kursk, roll and write, where you're attacking as you know a, a defensive line, so you don't really need a defender, right? You just have a defensive line, and you're rolling the dice, and as you as you take the combinations, you sort of chip away the, at the defensive line, and you kind of think. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, you know, if if you had told me twenty years ago that you know you're going to make a war game that's basically kind of like Yahtzee, I would have said, that's stupid. I mean, don't do yeah. that. I mean, who nobody I wants that or needs it. And, and, and I mean, it's still made, I mean, I'm not a good game designer, so it'd probably be a terrible game, but, but, uh, but it still is interesting to see how all of these sort of cross fertilization ideas, but between different games, like you just, like you, you were telling me, you know, about all, in the Plum Island, like all the, all the different things, like once you design Dawn of the Zeds, all of the new game mechanics that you thought, hey, I could right. put that in, in in my game and make it better. So right. that's 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 really interesting to hear. Yes, and by the way, uh, I don't know if you noticed, but Worthington I think has a roll and write Bismarck solitaire game. Really? Like the, yeah, like the hunt for the Bismarck? I don't know if it's if it's not. I don't think it's a traditional roll and write, but I know it's a. It's called Bismarck Solitaire. I, you think you can get it on Amazon? But they do they do write you do write I think the path of the Bismarck uh-huh. or something like that. Oh, I got to check that out. Oh, maybe they have some yeah. they have some ideas I can steal. Okay, good, excellent. Ah, I love that. I love yeah. I love stealing but ideas. See, but see, this is the fun part of designing these games is that you know you want to come up with new stuff. Right. Right. You don't want to churn out this, even like with blind swords and I and I get criticized for this. I have. Four versions of blind swords, really, because I can't help but tinker with with my own. Right, I always think I can make it a little bit better, or for for a particular scale or period, you need to create new mechanics, right, to make it fit better. And I'm always tinkering away. And I think a lot of designers who really enjoy this, you you want to think outside the box, or or here's a problem that needs to be solved. Can you come up with a way to do it? And I think that's part of the fun. I mean, certainly, we certainly don't do this. I mean, there's some exceptions, but I don't do this for the money. I mean. <laughs> right. you know, 
right? You know, yeah, you do it because it's 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 creative and it's fun and it keeps the brain plaque from forming. Yep. And, yep. You know, when I'm retired, it keeps me busy. Right? Yeah, you know? exactly. Not and 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 it's cool to to see like all these things. Like I I I just I'm I'm thrilled by seeing people put new stuff out and look at it and go, oh, look what he did with that thing. I didn't know you could do it that way. That's it. That's kind right. of neat. And and so I, I that's that's me. That's one of the reasons. I buy a lot more games than I actually get to play, mostly because I just I just want to buy them and read the rules and, and kind of see how see what people are thinking of in their in design. Exactly, I agree with you a hundred percent. I bought games and I love taking them apart, organizing them, yeah. reading the rules, and going, "Wow, that's really cool!" You yeah. know, uh, maybe one of these days I'll get it on the table exactly. and actually do it. Yeah, yeah. So. I mean, the big problem with like say. The thing you can't do with, that I'd love to do, and war game companies can't do it because we just don't have it, is so. For example, a game like Zombicide. Mm-hmm. Look, I don't care what anybody, the minis are great, right? Mm-hmm. Having all these minis in different forms and, and the usual—it's just so much fun. And you would love to be able to have that in a war game, right? Where you, you're using these gorgeous miniatures in some way, and it's just not practical. You know, war game companies are not Simon. You know, where they can put a hundred miniatures in a package and charge sixty bucks for it. You know, it doesn't happen, uh, and it's too bad because that would really open things up if if there was a way to do that. You know, just having model tanks instead of counters or you know something along those lines. Of course, there's actual miniatures gaming, but I used to do that back in the '90s. I had thousands and thousands of miniatures. I still have a few of them up there, but. It's uh, it's so much time and so much money, especially now. Now it's now it's te- twice as expensive it used to be back in the nineties. So and the other problem is, you know, you spend all this time and money building an army, and now you got to find people that are, are willing to play it with you enough times to make it worth all the investment of time and right. effort you put into mm-hmm. it. Do you think, do you think there's any any going to be any uh, any room for like a digital digital miniatures where you can sort of do the same thing, but you have the armies that are, you know, pre-made and you can just put them on the screen and they, they look great. They actually have that on Tabletop Simulator. There's a whole miniatures group there. Really? Yes. Check out Tabletop's. I like Tabletop Simulator. Mm-hmm. I would never got into Vassal. Okay. I couldn't figure Vassal out. <laughs> maybe I didn't want to figure it out. I don't know. But maybe it's because I was working then and I didn't right. want to bother with it after yeah. working all day on Excel. But I recently, and actually David Thompson's the one who told me about Tabletop Simulator, and he said you got to use, it. you got to figure out, you know, learn how to do the mod because you'll never play test any other way. And he was absolutely right. I got into Tabletop Simulator. I learned how to build a mod, not well, but enough to get it to work. And now all my play testing is done on that. I don't, I don't have a physical kit of the last two or three designs I'm, I did. Interesting. They're all on Tabletop Simulator. How how long does it take you to make one of those those mods? So the initial mod. It, it takes a few hours, right? Because you have to cut. I, I guess you have to do the same thing for Vassal, right? You actually have to um, snip the the um, the file, right. the, the graphics file. Yeah, you have the, to the snip artwork, it, yeah, you're every using piece, it. Mm-hmm. and upload it, and then you stick it. Just tabletop simulator. Once you get how to do it, mm-hmm. it does go fairly quickly, okay. and it has a clone function, so you don't have to do. Yeah, you can clone a counter. Like if you've got a shaken counter, you mm-hmm. don't have to make 30 of them. You just right. clone 29 of them. Okay. 
the, the real strength in Tabletop Simulator is not only can I play test with Fred or Harvey or all these guys who live in New York or anywhere or you or whatever, because, mm -hmm. you know, we can do it virtually, but anytime I'm updating, so, you know, like Fred and I are playing and we go, oh, I got to fix that counter or I got to change this rule or I got to change this card, I literally do it in two minutes. Hmm. I, I go on my my program, change the card, snip it, stick it in the game, and we go. Yeah, that's it. It's yep. not like oh, I gotta gotta go print it out, I gotta go cut it, and I gotta go glue it on some cardboard to make right. a card. You know, it goes a lot faster. The updating is just fantastic. I was dragged kicking and screaming into the modern world. <laughs> that that's the that's all the stuff that you know I think is makes things so much more um, just really dynamic now you know think, i just think about the the time in the old days where you'd get a new game and then somebody would write an article in the general about how to mm -hmm. uh you know how to this strategy and then somebody would get it and then they'd play it and be like no that doesn't work and then they send another article in and that would be like years and now yeah. the game comes out and while people are playing it they're posting on board game geek hey you know what about this rule i don't get this right and and right, and right. you're within an hour it's you know that question's answered it's just uh that and the uh the playthrough videos yeah i'm like glued to youtube mm -hmm. and i mean before i get any game i'm on you know, watch it played or on uh, the war game guys, you know, any of the mm -hmm. war game guys at Players Aid or uh, yep. um, Rough Swordsman or any of those guys are like, well, how does this game play? How does this game look? And I just look up the videos and now I can I can learn a game before I even buy it. Right. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. I'm, I'm... It is amazing. Yeah. It is amazing. And the, 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 great, the great job that does is it just gives you uh, some foresight before you drop 60 bucks on a game. Like, I, you know, I watch a few videos and go, do I really want that? Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know. Uh, maybe not. You know, yeah. and I just save myself 60 bucks or, you know, buying it and then having to resell it at a loss. Yeah, so, right. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, it, it's, uh, it's, it's a great hobby. Yeah. It's, a, it's a lot of fun. I, I have a, yeah, it's, it's really fun. It's, well, it's a fun hobby to play and it's a fun hobby to meet all the people and, and to talk to you again uh Herman, I think we've got a got a good hour in here that we can I can post for uh, for the listeners. So uh, thanks so much for taking the time. Well, uh, thank you for having me again. It was a, it was a lot of fun. I'm and uh, I this one Anytime. I'm I'm going to edit uh, very shortly so that uh, and then and then I'm going to upload the file to the cloud. So uh, if the world <laughs> ends, then once again we'll lose the we'll lose the file. But if my computer ends, Omicron. It, it, yeah, exactly. It won't it won't uh, it won't be lost. So thanks a lot, uh, Herman. I really I really uh, love talking to you, and we will talk again soon. All right. Thank you, Bruce. Thanks, bud. Okay, bye. My next interview is with my longtime friend and writing colleague, Tom Chick. I'm doing two interviews this time because I recorded this interview with Tom a year ago uh, <laughs> so that I would have something, you know, in the can, as it were, for the episode that I was going to do right after the one with Herman, you know, so I could get one out right away and not have to scramble for an interview. So I was planning ahead. Uh, <laughs> I guess that was some serious optimism. Uh, I'm including it here, uh, well, because if my track record for Wild Weasel production continues, if I were to leave it for the next Wild Weasel, uh, by then it would be a 10-year-old interview and the file formats probably wouldn't even be compatible. Uh, that's a joke. I, really, the reason I'm including it is that it was a great talk, and I think Tom brings up uh, a lot of excellent points that I think should be discussed more uh, as part of the game design process. In fact, as I listened to it, I was thinking, yep, Things are already moving in that direction. Uh, I guess progress is inevitable. All right, here's Tom. 
So this time on Wild Weasel, we have Tom Chick. Tom Chick was our very second guest back in uh, March of 2016, and he is back six years later, kind of like being uh, back from a time capsule. Tom, welcome to the show. It's been a long six years, Garrick. Yeah, yeah, a lot of things have happened. Uh, a lot of games have been released in six years. Um, in fact, so many games have been released that there's probably, I think, uh, a trend in gaming these days that uh, has been uh, taking place. I would say games have been getting better. Would you agree with that? Definitely, and especially, well, well, board games, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, video games, perhaps. Okay. Uh, this is a wargaming podcast, and I'm... I consider myself a bit of a dilettante with war games. Mm-hmm. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't know them as well as you do, but I grew up with them, and I, yeah. I'm constantly trying to get back into them. Uh, hmm. And I, in my recent attempts to get into war gaming, and I feel like it's, I feel like it's running away from me sometimes. I have to catch hmm. up, and I, I, I find a board game, a war game, I really want to play, and I dive into it, and that's happened a few times in the past six years. And I am concerned, Garrick, about war gaming, and that's why I'm glad you're you're mm-hmm. letting me uh, come on to Wild Weasel. Mm-hmm. Here, I, I have this this thing to start conversations where I'll throw out a provocative and absurd comment, mm-hmm. and just use it as a conversation starter. Sure. Maybe support it with a few points. But yeah. the whole purpose isn't necessarily that I believe this; it's to throw it at you and see how you respond. Okay. And one of my favorite ways to do this is to talk about board gaming and to say that good board gaming Mm -hmm. did not, was not invented until about 2010. Now that's an absurd statement because board gaming isn't invented and a quality level isn't invented. Uh, So when you throw it out there, people are like, what, you're an idiot. And now we argue about it. And, and it really becomes a conversation, right? Because I'm, I'm happy to back off of that once, once I sort of make my point. Uh, And that point is, that around 2010, uh, I, I link it to the popularity of the board game uh, pandemic, because I think that game sort of introduced a lot of changes that, that caught on to the rest of the industry and made it more accessible and expanded it and grew it. And what uh, kind of changes would you are those specifically? Well, so uh, changes to, for instance, uh, the pacing of a game, uh, just the playing time, you know, because I, I a lot of games could be made shorter. Um, the distribution of activity, you know, a game where one player on his turn does all kinds of cool stuff and he's flipping cards and rolling dice and having combats. And then the next player, oh, he moves one space and his turn is over. Like that, that pacing and that can be ironed out. Those are, those are problems that can be solved. Um, lots of interface issues, how information is presented. Um, one of my, one of my, one of the, the, the lines that gets thrown around in our gaming group is don't cover important information. Like when you put a piece on a board and it covers the name of the territory or even worse, like a a numerical value you need. Um, Covering important information is something you should never do and it should never be part of an interface. Uh, So that's something that's been ironed out. Rules writing. That's another thing. Uh, War games have a very specific way of presenting rules. And you and I cut our teeth on that. And I, I think you and I are very comfortable reading war game rules. Um, but I don't think that necessarily applies to the, the public at large, uh, to people who didn't grow up with war games. So and also there, there are more ancillary things like games being willing to explore new themes, uh, more of a focus on the importance of artwork and presentation, 
blurring the line between certain mechanics. Um, like, like it's not quite an easy division between Euro and Ameritrash anymore. There are new business models coming out. Some better, some worse. But I feel that board gaming underwent a revolution, and it's been flourishing since then. Mm-hmm. I am not seeing that, Garrick, in the war games that I'm attempting to play. Ooh, and okay. that might be because I'm playing the wrong ones, or it might be a confirmation of my concern, and that is nobody is inventing good war game design. Hmm. Okay, well, that's a very, that's a very provocative, uh, a very provocative uh, assertion because I, I kind of disagree with you, but uh, it may be that I have a different... Uh, Sort of a different threshold for what's good. Um, let's talk about let's talk about a game. Can you can you mention any game uh, specifically that you may have got tried to get into and uh, and you started well, running up against these issues? Uh, I wonder what 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 triggered this for you. So the, and I, I do like the, the word triggered uh, for better or worse. Like I I feel I definitely felt like I was triggered trying to play a John Butterfield design, which I adore, Garrick. So the first thing I want you to know about this design is I really admire it deeply. Mm-hmm. The second thing I need you to know about this John Butterfield design is I feel it is a mess and it can only be played by war gamers. Okay. Uh, now, this is a very, it's a kind of a, uh, it, it, it's his D-Day at Omaha series. It began as yes. a, a solitaire game, D-Day at Omaha. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like I can make inferences about war gaming at large because of John Butterfield's role, because of who he is, uh, and how prominent a designer he is. Okay. Um, so playing this game, and, and it is a solitaire game, but I do feel that a lot of the conventions that I'm talking about are also present in, in other games. Um, so playing this game, I kept running into issues. Uh, now, I don't. how well do you know the D-Day series? I know it well enough. I've, I used to play, I played it quite a bit when D-Day at uh, Omaha Beach came out. I think you played specifically playing Peleliu, right? Correct. Peleliu yeah. is the one that uh, I really sank my teeth into. Yeah. Okay. So I don't know that one as well, but I'm I'm fairly I'm fairly uh, familiar with it with the D-Day at series. So why don't we go ahead? So just to give uh, the folks sort of an overview, it began with Omaha, uh, mm-hmm. and this was uh, Decision Games. Wait, Decision or Compass? It, it is Decision. It's Decision. Decision. Good. Thank you. Uh, it began with Omaha. They released a follow-up at Tarawa. Uh, mm-hmm. Then the Pelelu one came out. Mm-hmm. Since then, there's been an Iwo Jima one. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe there's another one in the works. I don't know the specific uh, island that's on. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is a, a series that Butterfield has iterated on for, for mm-hmm. several games. Yes. Um, and I came into it at Pelelu on the third iteration. Mm-hmm. So I would have expected that, that it was fairly refined, that issues that arose in Omaha or Tarawa had mm-hmm. hopefully been ironed out. Mm-hmm. Um and the things I ran into, I'll, I'll try to speak, Garrick, in, in general terms so that it's clear these can apply to more games than just Pelelu. Yeah. But the very first one, mm-hmm. um, I, well, it's a war game. And yep. coming to it as a war game means there are certain limitations that I'm willing to accept. Okay. For instance, you can't wear droopy sleeves. I'm okay with that. <laughs> okay. Also, certain peripherals are mandatory. Uh, and some of them are kind of expensive. Those uh, that Oregon lamination yeah. counter cutter, uh-huh. just the aesthetics. I'm I'm happy yep. to pay seventy extra dollars for one mm-hmm. of those to mm-hmm. make my my war games look great. 
Yeah, um, some people will argue directly with you that you do not want to clip your counters. Wait, why would someone say that? You know, there are some people it, that just don't clip. Oh, 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 I thought you were going to say it like degrades them or or it makes the sound as they move along the board warmer or something. Like, no, they, I, no, I don't know. But there are some people well, who here, don't here's clip. The, Here's the gear, Garrick, where I resent – I don't resent uh, getting the, the tweezers. I don't even resent buying the plexiglass mm -hmm, to lay over mm -hmm. the paper map. Mm -hmm. I'm fine with that. Here's the one that gets me, and I finally gave in. I was bound and determined. I was never, never – and I'm going to hit the desk, so apologies for the noise. I was mm -hmm. never, never, never going to do this, but, yes. Garrick, a few months ago, I bought tweezers. Oh, did you put uh, little rubber ends on them? Oh, no, they came with it. They, they came with like a rubber grip and they oh, had little great. things, Perfect. pads on mm -hmm. the end. There was yeah. even a, a light, a button you could press to yeah, shine uh -huh. the light. Yep, yeah. Yep. I mean, it was just like $10 on Amazon, whatever. Right. But mm -hmm. I I needed them because D-Day at Pelelu, and I assume mm -hmm. all the D-Day games, mm -hmm. and certainly most of the war games I've tried, mm -hmm. are still stacking chits. Mm -hmm. And I need to see what is underneath that chit, damn it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And my big, fat, clumsy fingers getting in there mess things up. Like I'm at the point now where I'm playing a game that requires tweezers mm -hmm. because stacking is still a thing. Yeah. And that, that to me, Garrick, and I'm going to use this word. I, I don't use this lightly. Mm -hmm. uh, that to me, stacking is outrageous. Mm -hmm. I do not, as someone who doesn't want important information covered, who mm -hmm. loves board games for the ability to see spread before you all the information you need. Mm -hmm. It's outrageous to me that so many war gamers are willing to cover up the entirety of the relevant information about a, a, an important playing piece. Mm -hmm. uh, well, and that, I feel like, needs to be designed out of war gaming. Okay. Well, that's, <clears throat> that's a good point in some ways. I also uh, have some reservations about the amount of stacking that happens. Um, there are games are war games which don't have any stacking yep. uh that is generally a that's generally a function of the uh what's being represented so the uh, frontage of the unit versus the the um the scale of the map right. so <clears throat> it's and it's a difficult thing to get around although on the other hand there are some war games where you don't have any stacking uh there <clears throat> Heck, there were war games without stacking back back in the 70s. Uh, uh, I think all of the, if I, if I recall correctly, all the um, uh, modern war quads that SPI put out, I don't think those, I thought those did, don't think they had stacking. Um, also, things like uh, Nevsky or uh, the coin series, uh, things that use blocks rather than counters. Sure, uh, right. There are a lot of Napoleonic games where, now that you might not like this, but there, um, the information goes to a separate card. So you just have you're moving something on the map, and you have to look to a to a card to see what's actually in that, you know, what that kind of represents. Um, but how about this? Go ahead. Okay, go ahead. Well, you're oh. making me want to jump in, Garrick, because you're you're kind of making my point in a way, and that point is, this problem has been solved. Like there mm -hmm. are ways around stacking. And furthermore, I don't mind having multiple chits in a hex. The way mm -hmm. that you do that is you make the hex bigger so that they can all lay flat. Sure. Um, stacking to me means the hexes aren't big enough on the map. And it, it, it's an interface issue more than yeah. a design issue, yeah. I think. Well, the problem with that is going to be, I think, that if you 
if you were to really, and, I, and I've done this for some games, some, some smaller yeah. games, I've just taken the map and really, and just, you know, blown it up by about 400%. Um, but you shouldn't have to do that, Garrick. That should be the, develop, the developers, the publishers, the designers' job. I feel the problem um, with that. The problem with that is going to be that I have a lot of table space, and uh, that's something that's going to that would make games that would make even medium-sized games untenable sure. for most people. Yes, uh, that's a problem. Uh, the other thing is, what about games in which you don't want to know what's under those counters? Like, oh, I'm example, okay with that. By the way, that's a great that, that D-Day at Pelelu plays on that very, very. I mean, that's a fundamental part of D-Day at Pelelu is there are certain counters that are stacked because you're not supposed to know what's underneath. Right. Um, I mean that that is that, that's a, that is that can be a good interface thing, stacking mm -hmm. units, and it can mm -hmm. be a bad interface thing. Mm -hmm. um, and I just feel it's a it's a lazy convention that war. I say it's a convention that war gamers accept. Mm -hmm. That I feel they don't need to, that they shouldn't have to accept. I feel yeah. that war games should move past this. I, I saw um, there's a, a company, I, I'm not familiar with them, called Worthington Games. Yes. Uh, they just published uh, Battle of the Bulge 1944. Mm -hmm. um, and the it's selling point. One of the first games it, about that, I think. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, the selling point is you don't have many games about that battle. So right, if right. you're curious about it, you could learn about it. Um, sure, yeah. But. It's also a low counter count game specifically. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, and they have big old fat counters and big mm -hmm. old fat hexes. And it's exactly what I'm talking about, except once you start playing it, mm -hmm. you have to put down big old markers on top of the chits when they move, attack, or move and attack. Mm -hmm. Like their whole the whole mandate of this game seemed to be let's make everything big and visible, mm -hmm. but then still they're dropping counters on top of important information. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Why? Why would they do that? Like that to me is that's bad board game design, and I it should not be accepted. If I was a war gamer, I would just rail incessantly against that. That's ridiculous. I think. Well, depending on how what the counter density is, you don't actually have to put the counters on the actual in the same hex, right? You could put them adjacent. Can I uh, recommend something else? Go ahead. Um. Card games have played with the idea of tapping forever. Mm -hmm. um, why doesn't, for instance, in D-Day at Pelelu, mm -hmm. uh, when a unit moves, mm -hmm. uh, like I've gotten to, you're supposed to turn it upside, like, no, you, oh, no, no, you're supposed to put a counter on top of it right. to show that it moved. So mm -hmm. D-Day at Pelelu does the same thing, is you're covering information by stacking chits. Mm -hmm. Furthermore, to show that the unit has moved, you have to cover the, the information on the mm -hmm. chit. I mean, so... Why don't board games play with just turning a chit 90 degrees? Like, that's what I ended up doing, and it works fine. Um, well, people like, people I, have been doing that for a long time, actually. That, 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 that's, that's sort of a convention in war games that ah. when, like, when somebody's moving, like I was just, as a matter of fact, I was just playing a game, what, two, three days ago uh, with a friend of mine here, and we were playing on the table, and uh, he activated some formation, so he got to move the units of this formation. And as he moved them, he just rotated them 90 degrees. And we both understood exactly what he was doing. Now, Perfect. that leaves you with <clears throat> the problem of, A, that only, that only uh, means one thing, right? Uh, not, you, you can only rotate something 90 degrees once. If you want, maybe you could rotate it 90 degrees the other way, and it would mean a different thing. Yep. Um, 
So now you've got two things you could do. I guess you could rotate it uh, 180, and then it, that would mean a third thing. That's but see, not Derek, why are we having this conversation and not John Butterfield and the folks at Decision Games? Like, I feel like this is an easily solvable problem. And I, why isn't this codified in board games instead of providing these, the, instead of the rules saying, hey, stick a marker over important information? I'm capable of modding games, but I just feel like this could be an important step in making war games more accessible, if anybody even cares about that. I, um, I, don't th I think that people don't care as much about that as, as, you're, as you're saying. For example, oh, sure. People like the the counters that have you know there's a disrupted counter. The, the part of the part of the aesthetic of the game is having the you know the markers add to what the what the game's representing. So uh, you know explosions and and you know air. Uh, you know sometimes <clears throat> somebody's being attacked by air. There are no there are no formal you know air units. But if somebody's being attacked by an airstrike, you want to put an airstrike counter on the hex, not because, you know, the rules could say, well, any any hex that's being attacked by air, you know, rotate the counter 90 degrees. But maybe you want to have the, the airstrike on there for, for aesthetics, which I would argue is part of the part of the point of the war game is the aesthetics of, of recreating the historical, you know, sort of feel. Which I agree with, by the way, and I think that's another thing that I wish there were more advances for more games in terms of that presentation, that, that visual flair. Because um, I agree, like people, I find this one of the most, re I, I find this one of the least consequential things to talk about with a board game, but people constantly talk about table presence. And that almost always means, oh, it's got cool minis. But I, I wish that war games cared more about table presence, um, because I think there's a lot of opportunities that are missed there with what you're talking about um now and you do say that this is part of the aesthetic of war games but i don't feel that that aesthetic needs to require covering important information and and again it's just my own weird little thing about what i love about board games is all the information being accessible and visible at a glance um so i just wish that aesthetic found some way to achieve that without covering the chit. Yeah, well, that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a reasonable, I mean, that's, a, I think it's a reasonable complaint. Uh, there are, you know, games have tried to get around this in some way. Uh, there's the, the idea of strength points where you just have, you know, you reassign strength points to, um, to formations. I mean, part of the problem is that whatever your, uh, whatever your historical representation is, that, the, the the composition of, of military units is somewhat fungible, right? So you ha you have a, a core which consists of divisions, but that core didn't always have the same divisions. That was part of the uh, part of the sort of operational uh, direction was well, you know, this core's got this unit composition, uh, but we're going to assign it to this to this army that has uh, you know that's orders for an offensive and we're going to give it X, you know, we're going to give it some, some mechanized support. We're going to give it more artillery. And so, you know, the, the units have to change. Uh, this is something that obviously uh, computer games can do better than board games can do. Um, but yeah, I mean, there, it's, I mean, it's almost, a, it, it does turn sometimes into a little bit of a joke with, uh, with war gamers who look at, uh, who look at pictures of these giant stacks. I mean, I, I found one, uh, pick on uh, one photo on board game geek that I send around to friends uh, where the uh, it's, I think it's France 40 
And there are there's just these, these rows of stacks of, um, you know, 12 or 13 counters in a stack. I mean, it's just nuts. I mean, it's completely <laughs> crazy. And I mean, you, you remember those days, you remember when you saw those and like, Oh yeah, that's totally cool. Like that's normal. Yep. Yeah. Of course you have to have those, all those counters. And it's really, I mean, it's only playable with, with a, with a really Herculean effort. Uh, that most people aren't willing to, to invest. So yes, I agree with you. That is a, you know, stacking, stacking is a hard thing to, uh, hard thing to get around. And my suspicion is the following. So as you probably know, or could imagine the uh, square footage of American homes has been steadily increasing, uh, you know, over time, (laughs) certainly since the post, you know, since the war ended, uh, uh, World War II, post-war homes were a certain size, I think were somewhere in the thousand square foot. Now they're averaging over 27, 2,800 square feet. So my feeling is that uh, sometime in the next 50 years, uh, homes will get large enough that uh, they'll be able to have giant tables (laughs) that uh, any map can be blown up. And furthermore, the cost of production is going down. So uh, publishers will be able to regularly put uh, six foot by eight foot maps in their uh, in their games. Now you'll you'll run into another problem, Tom. Check. What's that? So if you if the map becomes big enough, so I don't know if you uh, if you've ever seen this, but uh, but have you seen the um, uh, big model train layouts where you they're so big that you have to crawl on a on a second level. Uh, to get to access oh, sure. the, the trade. Yeah. So I yeah, think yeah. that might, that might end up happening with war games where you have to crawl <laughs> on a second level to just get to the, to the space in the, in the center of the map, because you can't reach it with your arm unless humans sort of evolve into having longer arms as well as they're evolving to have bigger houses. But and I but yeah, that's agree. A, that's a slightly longer time frame. Yeah, than yeah, probably. About yeah. Here, so fair yeah, enough, sure. right? Okay, all right. <laughs> but the thing is, Garrick, I completely like. I understand those big, huge, massive games that uh, people like you love. Like, I get that. I'm okay with those things being just weird and alien and having 13 mm-hmm. stack uh, chits in a stack. Um, but I do feel that D-Day at Pelelu is such a really cool system mm-hmm. that doesn't have to be limited to war gamers mm-hmm. like I, I feel that butterfield has this great what what it basically does as you know you've played it mm-hmm. is it creates these little tactical nodes around the mm-hmm. map that right. you have to reveal by encountering them mm-hmm. and then puzzle out how best to use your units to take it out um sure. and i feel like that the basic gameplay at d-day at Pelelu is brilliant and should be a, a board game available to a wider audience mm-hmm. but not in its current state. Right now, there is no way anybody but a war gamer could play this because of things like the chit stacking, because of how the rules are written, uh, because of how the gameplay is expressed. Even um, what like do you mean a by lot that? of well, a lot of the rules. We've talked about this before with um, a Jeremy White game that you turned me on to, which I love, um, called Skies Above the Reich. Oh wait, Storm Over. Yeah, Storm Over the Reich is the second one. Yeah. Okay, and Skies Above the Reich is the one that I've been playing. Yeah. Um, and I, I love this game. I, I have some issues with it as well. But I feel that Jeremy White, by the way, the stuff mm-hmm. he's doing, he is going to break out of wargaming just by virtue of the fact that he's doing such cool, subversive, clever stuff. Okay. I mean, I don't even think that guy can be held down by an interface or anything like <laughs> I'm talking about. He's just going to bust out one day, I'm convinced. Um, yeah. But in Skies Over the Reich, 
you and I have talked about this before, the way it expresses things like how dangerous is it to climb as you're attacking a bomber versus uh, should you attack a bomber from the nose or the tail? You know, mm -hmm. the tail, you're exposing yourself, you're more likely to be hit. The nose, it's probably safer. Mm -hmm. um, all of these concepts and, and things also like how hardy is a, is a Falk Wolf 190 versus a Messerschmitt 109. Mm -hmm. um, all of this stuff is hidden in the distribution of icons in a deck of cards. Mm -hmm. So if I want to know how should I best attack this bomber formation, you know, what's the safest way to do it versus mm -hmm. the most efficient way to do it. Mm -hmm. um, I need to either learn what Jeremy White is modeling, mm -hmm. namely all of the rules of, of bomber attacks that the mm -hmm. Luftwaffe learned the hard way. Mm -hmm. Or I need to go through and study the distribution of icons on all the cards. Mm -hmm. no, there's a third the, way. The third way is Jeremy White could have, in the rules, written something about, here is what is being expressed in this distribution of icons on these cards. Mm -hmm. He does no such thing. There's a fourth Similarly, way. Similarly, oh, sorry, I cut you off, Wade. No, there's a fourth way then. Oh, what, what's the fourth way? Do what the Luftwaffe did. Is play and learn. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And that is a fascinating approach, but I don't think most people, I, I think it's, it would drive away the kind of people who I want to be able to enjoy Skies Above the Reich. Hmm. Like, I want to show this game to people. I want mm -hmm. my friends to try it. But mm -hmm. none of them is going to have patience for, well, I have to play like a real Luftwaffe squadron leader, and I have mm -hmm. to learn the hard way which direction to attack a bomber from and how likely I am to get this plane killed versus that. Hmm. Um, uh, now, and oh, ahead. and just real quick, just to to, yeah. to close the to bring it full circle, Didea Pelelu does the exact same thing. Those face down chits that you flip up to see what you need to attack that node. There's gameplay in the distribution of icons on those chits. Mm -hmm. There's gameplay about the efficacy of artillery versus mm -hmm. flamethrowers versus small arms. Mm -hmm. There's gameplay about armor piercing. There's gameplay about mm -hmm. what a flamethrower does. Mm -hmm. But you would never know that unless you learned by playing a million times or if you flipped over the counters and studied the distribution of icons. Mm -hmm. Because the third way of teaching someone, having it be part of the rules or having it something having it be something that the designer expresses, mm -hmm. that didn't happen. Mm -hmm. um, so that's another thing that I feel that war gamers, that, that war games, that keeps normal people from playing mm -hmm. war games, uh, okay. is it hides a lot of important information in distribution. Okay. Well, <clears throat> I, I, I know the answer to this question, but I'm going to just ask you so you can answer it. Have you ever played a game called Eldritch Horror? I have, yes. Okay. Now, in Eldritch Horror... Before you played it the first time, did you uh -huh. go read all of the encounter cards to see what could happen to you? I hope this doesn't screw up your point because I want to hear it, but yes, I did. Okay. Now, <laughs> well, that doesn't screw up my point. Because okay. Because okay. I realized, Derek, that's not typical. I'm, no, I'm that's not what there. people okay. are going to do, right? Exactly. They don't right. want to know, right? That's part of the story. So right. I think you would, I think you, yeah, I think you would admit, as you just did, that that uh, you're kind of an outlier on that, right? You're not yep. going to, you're not going to tolerate not knowing what could happen because you are primarily concerned with the system and how to beat the system. Whereas some people, and especially in a game like that, might be like, oh, I just want the game to tell me a story. Absolutely. Absolutely true. Yep. So I will definitely cop to that. 
Yeah, so I would say that the game might be telling you a story that you just don't want to hear. Well, well, I see what you're saying. <laughs> well, so you're saying that if I want to play skies above the Reich, I need to do it from a position of ignorance, learning as the Luftwaffe did? Well, you don't need to. I mean, you can certainly, but that's certainly one way to play the game. And I think that there are people. So, <clears throat> so this is another thing. Although I think it's I think it's changing a little bit, but uh, you, you know the the uh, feeling of um, I don't know what sort of game game I don't want to call it game exhaustion, but there's this this idea that people bring a game to the table, like you know you have a group of people, and you bring a game to the table and you put it down, and everybody kind of wants to be able to play it and then move on to another game, often in the same evening, right. and. And uh, you just kind of play it and go and play it and go. And there's no sort of um, tolerance for, I'm going to play this and then I'm going to play it again and see how it goes. And I'm going to play it again from a different sort of strategy and see how it goes. And that, I think, is something that, uh, that wargaming is a little, because of the, because of the amount of, effort and time you have to put into, for example, learning the rules, you uh, you don't necessarily just drop it. And plus the playing time, right? So, so I'll go back to, to playing. I was playing a friend of mine uh, earlier this week. Uh, we're playing a game called uh, Enemy Action Kharkov, which is uh, the, the sequel to Enemy Action or, or sequel. The, the next game of the Enemy Action series, Enemy Action Ardennes, came out, gosh, it's got like five years ago at least. Um, and those are, the, those are John Butterfield as well, right? Another John Butterfield. John Butterfield is the king of uh, of uh, solo games. He put he decided a great game called RAF, which I think you would go. Well, I don't know if you'd go crazy. That's an interesting one. There's not a lot of there's not a lot of stacking in that game. That game you might actually. <laughs> gosh, maybe I should get you a copy of RAF. Um, so <clears throat> here's the thing. Uh, we played it. And we played, uh, the game actually has, it has stacking, but, but there's a lot of, there's a, there's a lot of, uh, sort of room on the map and the, the chits are really big and you, uh, there are many times where you don't stack because you don't need to, because you're trying to, especially for the Germans, you're trying to cover a lot of area. You don't really have the luxury of, uh, of putting two units in the same hex. You need to spread them out to keep the Russians from breaking through. Um, but we played it, and it was fascinating. It was a really, I think it's a really good game. Uh, so what did we do? We both immediately went home, or Ken went home because he played here. But I mean, um, you know, what do we do? Uh, my friend went home, and I stayed here. But we both kept looking at the game, and were, you know, I set it up again, and I, uh, I went through, okay, well, he attacked this way, and and it was that a viable thing for him to do? And then we were both talking about, hey when's the next time you're free we need to do this again and there's this concept that we need to keep playing this game i mean there we played there was another game uh which was a two-player game called roads to leningrad that i think we've played each other at least three times uh it, and 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 you know consecutively so you know we played it and like well what if we did this and what if we did this and it, there's the, there's a greater sort of willingness on the part of, of people uh, to in, in the wargaming hobby to do this rather than uh, rather than just 
drop it on the table, play it, say, okay, that was great. Okay, what's the next thing? Oh, you know, we got, we've got, still got the whole evening to play. Let's do this. It, oh, it takes 45 minutes. Yeah, set it up, boom, boom, boom. So, so that's something that I think would benefit uh, games like uh, Skies Above the Reich because, hey, you jump in, you do the tactics wrong. It's a solitary game, right? So part of it's figuring out how to get better at it. Right. So when you say that's something that you think would benefit it, what, what do you mean that's something? What's the that? I mean, that, I mean that, 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 that willingness, the, the, the ability to invest or to the, the, the desire to play something over and over and over. Because I think oh, what sure, you're saying sure. is, the, is the, you know, people put the game on the table and want to be able, you know, every, the kind of thing where you explain the rules and then everybody sort of kind of processes them and says, okay, well, I, I can kind of, I can kind of see how to play this and everybody kind of has an equal chance as opposed to the games where, for example, Twilight Struggle, where you don't really, you can't say you're going to be good at the game until you know what all the cards say, right? Because somebody might play a card that there's an easy counter to, you don't do it that way. You've got to know what all, what's coming up. This is exactly the kind of thing you're complaining about. Well, but, but I will I will say though, I feel that there's a difference between like what you're talking about, like with Eldritch Horror and to a certain extent, maybe even Twilight Struggle. You could argue that's part of the, the narrative of those games, and you don't want to know in advance like about the narrative. And I can understand that. Some people might even think, oh, that's a spoiler. Um, but what I'm talking about are more strictly gameplay mechanics um, that inform the decisions that I have to make. Um, when I play Eldritch Horror, I'm okay with flipping over a card and it's a Shoggoth and I died, whatever. But when I play skies above the Reich, and I'm attacking obliquely, and I flip over a card, and my airplane blows up. Like, I kind of want to know, did I just draw an outlier? Like, was that just an unlucky result? Or is that somehow more likely to happen if I attack from an oblique angle? Is that a function of this particular deck of cards and the way the icons are in it? Um, and it's, it's, like, it's similar to my complaint with Pelelu, is the hidden information that's a function of the distribution of icons on the chits i don't i'm okay with it being hidden but i just want to know more about what's being represented um one of the things i've learned about those face down chits is they they're called depth markers and I have no idea why they're called that and i've even asked about that and on bgg some people have offered some and i think maybe even there's a quote from butterfield about why it's called that but that doesn't really mean anything to me um, and what I discovered about those markers is mostly, I, I'd have to check my notes, but they are usually a function of flanking or shelling. Like it has to do with how the unit is positioned in the terrain. And it doesn't have anything to do with, oh, do you have a radio or do you have a Browning assault rifle or can you match uh, demolition charges? Like it's almost always a function of do you have artillery support and can you flank them? But you would never know that playing the game unless you looked at the distribution of chits. Um, and I feel like that's a simple thing you could say in the rules. Is that well, depth you just, markers? You're, you're looking for for better designers' notes. Well, that, that's that. All of this is of a piece, and that's exactly like war game writing. I don't think really allows for that kind of stuff. Like war game writing, war game rules are written for war gamers who, like me are more than happy to flip up those chips, look at the distribution maybe. Maybe they played a few times and had an issue with it, and they thought, oh, well, let me investigate the inner workings of this. You know, a war gamer has that kind of inquisition more commonly, I think, than a casual board gamer, that, that kind of inquisitiveness. 
Um, but what if in the rules, what depth markers do was conveyed more clearly to maybe more casual gamers? Like, I feel that, yeah, how the rules are written, even something like what you call this marker, um, I, I just feel like these are issues that, that I know war gamers will accept, and I wish that they wouldn't, because I feel like they're keeping the genre to themselves. Uh, it's the same thing that happened with, like, flight simulations and, and real-time strategy games. Like, those genres kind of died out because they didn't become welcoming to new players. They, they adhered to the conventions that their fans preferred. And I'm just concerned that this is happening in wargaming, which, for the most part, that's fine. If wargaming wants to become a dinosaur, it can knock itself out. But what I don't want to happen is for it to drag these brilliant Butterfield designs, these amazing Jeremy White innovations. Um, some of the, like, I, there, are, there are games in wargaming that mean a lot to me and that I want other people to be able to appreciate. And I just feel like the, the way the, the industry is currently going, it doesn't, have, it doesn't share my concern. Hmm. Well, I mean, I think that uh, you probably there, I'm, I think that there are probably designers who, uh, who very much want to be more, uh, welcoming. Uh, <clears throat> I think there, there are very few designers that are like, gosh, you know, I, the fewer, the fewer people that play this game. Right, right, right. <laughs> right. So, well, there is something to be said though for, and, and I'm sure you know this. I hmm. like I applaud to designers who just are, don't care, who just are delivering something they want to play, they know an audience right. wants to play. Right. I'm not trying to throw any mandates down for everyone. Right. Um, right. But but yeah, I, yeah, I, I, there are definitely designers who are doing better than others. Sure. Yeah. Well, I think that I mean I think those are all. I mean there there are tons of there are tons of uh, what you would call lifestyle uh tweaks that are being made to games i mean this the game that i just played this enemy action karkov i mean it, it this it's interesting because i didn't even th think about this in the way that you're thinking about it even though i did immediately instinctively do it with uh in the way that you're talking about there's a there's a deck each player has a deck which first of all that mechanic is completely uh the uh the result of of the economics of of making components uh making cards used to be you know actual playing cards used to be prohibitively expensive for anything you right 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 and so you just you couldn't do it i mean they're just sorry i mean you, you, the game can't cost two hundred dollars and then uh, what happened and then magic gathering came along and you know <laughs> they and the, the company had to to put a, a facility in the u.s to, to print those those uh yeah you to print those cards and then all of a sudden everything became much cheaper and now you know then uh you know Mark now the letter cdg yeah. exist yeah exactly yeah <laughs> yeah so but but the thing is so i'm playing this game this week with uh, with a set of cards used for activations which i think is great and uh and i was looking at the cards my opponent had on the first turn to activate these formations because he has i think something like 17 cards but only i think 12 of them are going to get be available to him on the first turn so what was the first thing i did i went and counted all of the cards for the different formations to diff, to you know to identify which are the ones that are most likely which ones have multiple activations which one are which ones are, you know if i see if i see this formation get activated once it's not going to get activated again because there's just no there's no card in that deck for for that 
formation. So as soon as he plays it, I'm like, oh, that thing's not moving again. Uh, whereas I looked at the ones that, you know, he had these spearhead formations and those things have like two and three cards in the, in the deck. And so if they move, they could move again. And so then you start card counting, right? And you're like, okay, well, you know, he's got 12 cards. He's already used these many and what's the odds of all this kind of stuff, which, you know, I, I gotta say is, it seems like a normal thing to do, right? I mean, heck, I mean, poker players do it, right? Right, right. <laughs> Garrick, Magic the Gathering players do it. Right. <laughs> exactly. So so that I feel like the the idea that that um you know that's not something that I mean I guess you could put that in the rule book, but it's just, it's easier, frankly, than to try to look at that a chart to just take them out and flop them down in front of you and be like, oh, mobile group pop-off's got four cards. Uh third tank army has three cards, uh 40th guards has one. Easy, just in front of you, boom, and then you put it back. Uh, so I think that uh, you might not, I, I'm going to say that you might not be giving people as much credit as they deserve. And, and I, I would be very happy if that were the case, Garrick, because I, I again, my I'm strictly a dilettante. I have not played nearly as many war games as I would have liked to. Um, but the ones that I am playing, I just like so much, and I wish that, it's it just, I I wish they were just normal board games because I feel <laughs> that they're good enough to be. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. yeah. uh, and that—that's I don't mean that's a I, I don't mean to put it that way because I, no, I, I, I do it. like I board games. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I just I don't want I don't want the genre to just be the, this the niche that I, I feel it currently is. Yeah. Uh, well, now also remember that you're playing uh, you're playing games that are are both of the games that you mentioned are, are solo games. Yeah. Oh yeah, 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 no, and yeah. that's that's a very good point. Absolutely, yeah. But and then, but I do, you know, I'm trying to think like what multiplayer war games have I played? Uh, it's been forever, Garrick. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. You know what the issue is? Is I don't, I don't know anyone who plays war games. Like who lives locally to me? Right. Like right, like right. you and I are uh, too far apart. Like right. nobody who I play board games with, mm -hmm. and maybe there are a couple of exceptions, but mm -hmm. those folks wouldn't play war games. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, and yeah. that's and that's getting at the heart of the issue because I, I would play war games with them. Right, um, right. And the ones that we do play, Garrick, mm -hmm. are the more advanced, like GMT ones, that uh, I feel aren't really war games, but they're GMT design. Like, well, no, those are war games. I just what do you what name a game? Oh, like Imperial Struggle. I, I mean, oh, our, I our mutual friend Kyle, he'll play right. Imperial Struggle with me whenever. Yeah. Like, yeah, I, I can yeah, find yeah. people right. to play stuff like right. that. Um, right. But I'm thinking of the traditional, like, shit and hex stuff. Yes, um, right, yeah. right. Okay. Well, <clears throat> Tom Chick, I think that uh, Wargaming has heard you, and Wargaming <laughs> is not unsympathetic to your uh, concerns. Um, I think that... Uh, what, to be honest with you, I, I feel like there's a there's a there's an element of, um, you know, the, what, what's that the Moore's law where the uh, processors double and yeah. So I feel like wargaming has the same kind of or I mean wargaming, but board gaming at least has the same kind of progression because I look at stuff from twenty. You know, we used to say, and I and I I got to I got to. Uh, Admit to the listeners, I've heard Tom's. Uh, I've heard Tom's uh, good board games were only invented in Shtick before. But I will point out to the listeners and to Tom that his date keeps advancing. 
And I think this is a thing that is, well, I get, we used to keep advancing. I think you've used 2010. The, the pandemic thing is a good anchor for you. I think it's, that, was a good, that was a good strategy for you to, to pick something like that because I feel like as we go forward, stuff that looked reasonable five years ago, now I look at it and go, oh God, what are, what are they doing? How how did these how were these counters so thin? How were they so small, right? And 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 GMT is even doing that with their with their war games. The um the the component quality is noticeably better. Um, you know, as you know, after a certain breakpoint, they started getting thicker counters. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think they're the 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 compass game that I was playing the um, uh, enemy action. I, I even pulled out enemy action or dens because because my friend and I were kind of comparing them. The, the counters in enemy action or dens are thinner. They're just chintzier, they're smaller, and uh, and the map's smaller, and, and the enemy action Kharkov map is bigger, the chits are really big and thick, uh, the numbers are really big, uh, it's really nice, and I feel like, uh, you know, five years ago, I looked at enemy action Ardennes, and I thought, yeah, this is, yeah, this is a perfectly cromulent game, and uh, and now I pull it out and go, oh gosh, I, it, that's, this looks cheesy, this is cheap, this is, you know, they, they got it, they've got to do reprint, Um and so I feel like a lot of these lifestyle uh, modifications to games are just, they, they're, they're coming. They're, 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 they're on the way. They might go more slowly in wargaming, but they, but they still, yeah, I'll, uh, next time I see, I'll show you, you know, the difference between enemy action uh, and, uh, and um, Arden, uh, between Kharkov and Ardennes. Very different productions. And uh, I think that, I think people are, there's even, I think Worthington and, and some other, uh, Mark, uh, Mark Walker of, um, uh, well now he's, I think it's Mark Walker product. He used to be lock and load, but now he's a Mark Walker productions, tiny battle. He always says things like, you know, we've got one inch chits, you know, that for, for old eyes and things like that. So I think, I mean, people are, I think people are catching on people, people do want, uh, but I'm, but I'm glad that you, uh, I'm glad that you, um, have brought this up because it is. It is a concern sometimes. Uh, there will always be those games where uh, people are going to stack and just it's fine and that's part of the aesthetic. Um, but yeah, I, I'm I'm <clears throat> I'm looking forward to whatever uh, lifestyle improvements war game designers and companies. By the way, companies are a big part of the solution to make bigger maps and things. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, and the housing industry for building uh, bigger houses, <laughs> uh, bigger tables. <laughs> exactly for our bigger maps. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well, Tom Chick, thank you very much for uh, for bringing this warning to Wargaming, and uh, Wargaming uh, will be ever vigilant. Thank well, you. Well, Garrick, thank you so much for having me, uh, and I'm super psyched that uh, I get to be on a wild weasel again. Thank you. Excellent. Now it just has to get actually produced. I have a bunch of thoughts about game design this time. But when don't I have a bunch of thoughts about game design? Uh, but these I want to frame uh, in the context of playing a certain game system over several iterations, because uh, that's going to be important. Uh, recently, a friend of mine and I broke out the old chestnut Storm Over Arnhem. Yep, mm -hmm. we did. Uh, and uh, which some of you may know is the first in Courtney Allen's Area Impulse series. Uh, that's a series that has certainly developed over time. I remember what a big deal it was when it came out. Uh, it's kind of stuff you hadn't seen much before. Uh, <clears throat> and having played almost all of these games, uh, the Air Impulse games over the years, 
it was simply fascinating to go back and play the original with someone who had never played it. Uh, and I was immediately struck by two things. One, how static the situation is. But two, uh, how the gameplay innovations, uh, for the time they were quite striking, by the way, still make for a great game. There's nothing quite like a dice-off that gives you some really unexpected results. And then you hear about it from your opponent. Uh, I, I liked how individual moves could be extremely meaningful and how those move choices led to a real tension that you don't get in the same way from a game where there are 500 counters per side and the dynamics, um, they're more distributed. So it was also interesting how the game moved so much faster as it went along because the attrition on both sides just reduced the number of impulses we took each turn. So, you know, you have fewer units, uh, you're going to make fewer moves. And so we're going through the series now anyway, and we're going to probably play Michael Ranella's Monty's Gamble next. I mean, actually, I think we, we will do that next. That'll be the next one. Uh, that was published by MMP a few years after Avalon Hill folded. Um, uh, my copy is from 2003. Uh, they, MMP did reprint uh, uh, second edition, which uh, came out a few years ago. Uh, it, it, and definitely uh certainly upholds all of the um all of the traditions of the of area impulse very much very similar to breakout normandy uh, monty's gamble is um but you know since i'm all eastern front all the time <laughs> uh, my favorite area impulse game is really turning point stalingrad and uh you know i remember loving this game and playing it over and over with friends back in the early 90s, uh, including by email over Genie, of all things. Some of you guys were on Genie, probably. Um, I had a copy of the game set up on a table, okay? And each day, I'd get an email from my opponent, and I'd make the move on the board, and then I'd take my own move, and then I'd email it back. Hmm. It had kind of presence uh, to it that I think gets lost on Vassal or Tabletop Simulator because, you know, it was real. <laughs> you could touch it. But anyway, so uh, I pulled out Turning Point Stalingrad and set it up and immediately recalled all the options and dilemmas. You know, the, <clears throat> the way it works is you use units, you, they're fresh, and then they become committed when you commit them by moving them. But uh, if they don't do well uh, in their attacks or if they get attacked, they can remain committed for a long time. And because uh, the disruption uh, takes a long time to uh, to be removed, so I can still picture, you know, any number of game situations where a bunch of you know heavily disrupted German units uh, shared a victory point area with you know single Russian unit or maybe two Russian units, and and those Russian units were denying them the victory points, and just how hard it was to clear them out, uh, despite you know what seemed like you had overwhelming firepower. So very Stalingrad. Um, and so, you know, one thing leads to another. And because of that, I pulled out a game called Stalingrad Verdun on the Volga, uh, which is Michael Ranella's take on Turning Point Stalingrad. And he, he, he states very clearly in his dinosaur, that's what he's, you know, that's where he's coming from. And he, he uses even very, almost the same map, not quite, but uh, he uses the same areas. It's, it's very similar, but they're, they're in, in some ways and very different in others. Um, and it came out just a few years ago. Uh, okay, six years. Six years ago? Wow. Okay. Well, it doesn't seem that long, honestly. The caveat is I haven't had a chance to actually play it against anyone. Um, but, you know, I was messing around with it. So, you know, some things uh, about it struck me immediately. So 
<clears throat> the first thing is that Verdun and the Volga, it, it's not exactly an area impulse game. Actually, I would say it's not an area impulse game because the thing that signifies the real Courtney Allen lineage back to Storm Over Arnhem and Thunder at Casino, at least in my mind, is the idea of the fresh and committed units that I was talking about. You know, once you move a unit, you're committing it and ensuring that for at least some period of time, whether it be a turn or two, or it can be even more, you won't be using it. So that creates this essential tension that, that's present in the system. It exists right from the get-go in Storm Over Arnhem. And it comes to what I think is a level of gaming perfection, frankly, in Breakout Normandy. Um, and just as an aside, there's a second essential feature to the area impulse system, which is that both, in my opinion, both the attacker and the defender should roll dice. Um, if you don't, uh, it causes a whole bunch of design problems that, that, that I really find problematic. But, but that's a completely separate subject. And at some point, I'll explain why I really dislike the games that don't do this, um, such as Storm Over Stalingrad and Storm Over Dien Fu. But for now, let's just focus on fresh versus committed units. Okay, so... Michael Rinella's criticism of Turning Point Stalingrad, which, by the way, I've seen elsewhere over the years, uh, I think it's certainly a legitimate one, uh, is that even though Stalingrad was a real attritional meat grinder, uh, the combat in Turning Point Stalingrad isn't really attritional. Yes, it, it is for the Soviets. They take tons of casualties and lose a lot of units. But, of all things, the Germans really don't. I mean, they do lose units when the Soviets counterattack. But that's very rare, and it's not really part of the flow of the game. In fact, they get attacked. The, the Soviets often want to do things called infiltration, which uh, is kind of moving into an area and not attacking it. So the whole uh, Soviet player rubric is different. Because instead, the Soviets are constantly feeding units into contested areas uh, you know, and watching them get eliminated, but then feeding in more. Uh, and, and the exhaustion that settles over the German side, it, it's not really losing units. It's more that those units are disrupted, which just means that they, they're not usable. They have a limited availability of troops where you have lots of units that are still on the board, but they're disrupted and you, you can't necessarily use them. Okay. Um, which I agree that can feel odd and not very historically accurate in a literal sense in a battle that was known for just, uh, you know, crippling casualties. So what does Michael Ranella do? Michael Ranella, in his game, uh, Stalingrad, Verdun, and the Volga, units can take step losses, okay? And this is crucial from a game design standpoint because the way units take step losses, I mean, we all know this, uh, is to flip them to the, to the reduced side, right? They have a full-strength side, and you flip them over, and they're reduced. Okay, I mean, <clears throat> okay, fine. Uh, except for Anzio, where you take a different unit off of a track and replace Let's Okay, look, not go there. That, you, you know what I'm talking about. So, <clears throat> so this idea of flipping a unit... Uh, is to represent a step loss is something you can't do in area impulse because in area impulse, flipping a unit means something completely other. It means the difference between a unit being fresh and committed, not being full strength or reduced strength. Okay. Now it, it's true. Um, you know, some, sometimes flipping a unit uh, makes it weaker. So by flipping a unit in area impulse play, you're showing that it won't be activated again for some period of time. Uh, it will likely, but not always, have a reduced defense strength, okay, as committed units are weaker than fresh units, usually. Uh, but the main function is not to reduce the strength so much as to use the unit, okay? So by going to step reduction, you're making a design decision to not use the fresh versus committed rubric, okay? So yes, I mean, you could put strength reduction markers on each unit when it takes a loss, 
and still use the fresh versus uh, committed uh, flipping the unit. But because flipping a fresh unit to its committed side is in itself a way of satisfying a casualty uh, points inflicted upon you, you'd have to incorporate this new loss marker into the casualty calculation. And if you did it with an area impulse game that had variable duration disruption, right? You have different markers that say how long your unit is disrupted. You'd have to have two different markers on the same unit, one for the disruption duration and another for the loss. And also you'd be flipping the counter over and I think it'd get messy pretty quickly. So, um, so for good reason, uh, Michael Ranella pretty much disposes of the idea of fresh and committed units in favor of step losses. Okay. Uh, and this is fine because he also changes the game scale to regiment from battalion, which, which is a huge change, by the way, uh, drastically reduces the number of counters in the game, which of course means you have to change the pacing because the number of opportunities to do something needs to be proportional to the number of you know, discrete actions you can take. So with so many fewer units, this will be fewer actions than as in, in Turning Point Stalingrad. That just makes sense. Also, uh, you need to decide how to account for the fact that you're not necessarily limiting units to one activation per turn. And that's, you know, you, you've eliminated area impulse, uh, but you need to put some other gate on unit usability. Uh, and and Renella does all this, okay? So units can move multiple times per turn. Uh, in fact, they can move over and over because your limitation is no longer commitment, but it's a combination of the limited number of impulses each turn and the fact that in every combat, the attacker is guaranteed to take a step loss with his lead unit. Okay. So if you're attacking, you're taking a step loss. And uh, in my opinion, this works. Okay. You can launch divisional sized attacks over and over. But as you do, you have to keep changing your lead unit because if you attack twice with the same unit, units have two steps, uh, it's going to be eliminated. And like I said, each time it attacks, takes a step loss, two attacks, you're done. So you get this rotation of, of units in the same uh, formation making attacks over and over. And, and this really wears down the German army, just as I'm sure Michael Ronella intended, right? And each turn, the German will get some replacements, but the overall trajectory of German strength is definitely attritional. So what does this mean? Uh, overall, I'd say that Verdun on the Volga is a pretty darn good regimental portrayal of Stalingrad. Uh, like most games Michael Ronella designs, it, it doesn't take that long to play, and it moves briskly, and there aren't that many counters, and I do like it. Uh, and just uh, as an aside, it must be good, because the only copy of the game I could find for sale, I mean, I have my own copy, but I was just looking at, you know, seeing... Uh, What's this thing going for these days? It's sold out, uh, out of stock, out of print at uh, Last Stand Games. The only game I can find for sale on Board Game Geek uh, costs 185 bucks. Uh, so, uh, you know, that kind of inflated secondary market value uh, is often, not always, but often a uh, better vindication of quality than most ratings, frankly, in my opinion. Um, but, in my opinion also, one game is not a substitute for the other. And I think this, what this shows is how two different systems can each struggle to capture what I'm going to call, and I'm going to continue to call uh, in the, for the rest of this podcast, uh, something called the historical moment. Uh, and this is kind of just our impression of how something was in history and how sort of uh, permanent it is and how big an impression it makes on us. 
Um, because, you know, the one thing the area impulse system does so beautifully is to uh, show the difference between possibility and result. And I think that's a big thing in games. You know, you have all these units, but what's going to happen? You put together an attack. If it goes horribly wrong, you're going to be bogged down in the sector for days because you're going to take all these disruptions. And all of a sudden, you're making good progress, and now you're completely, uh, completely stuck. So nothing generates tension uh, in the way that area impulse does, I think. And Ranella's substitute, <clears throat> it achieves some things, but it feels flatter in this specific way. So even though uh, I, I agree that it solves other problems quite nicely. And in the end, it all depends on how you understand the historical moment. Uh, for lack of a better term, I'm just going to keep using it because I have a point to make about it uh, in the context of something else. So it's this idea of a historical moment that I think is very attractive to those of us who like the history part of historical wargaming. And it takes a compelling historical moment to get our attention. One reason I was thinking of this is that uh, I was thinking of an answer to a question that Mo of Mo's Gaming Table asked me. It must have been last year when I was looking for things I could discuss on Wild Weasel. And uh, Mo said, uh, why do you think there are so many games being released, both new games and reprints actually, about a hypothetical NATO-Warsaw Pact conflict in the 1980s that never happened? It must have been last year because I think part of it was just a timing accident because uh, Compass did release both uh, the NATO, Victory Games NATO reprint and the GDW uh, Third World War reprints in a short period of time, very close together. But but yeah, I mean, they were, they were both substantial game releases and then MMP's Iron Curtain had come out not too long before that. And uh, Thin Red Line Games uh, is producing a whole series of games based on uh, what I'd call a an upgunned version of Mark Herman's Next War, SBI, 1978, uh, and so on. And so there's a bunch of 1980s heavy metal out there in cardboard form, whether new or reprinted. Uh, it's all floating around now, and Mo's question was, why? And uh, so to channel Michael Kaufman, one of my favorite military analysts for a second, uh, the short answer is, I don't know, <laughs> uh, although I do have a few ideas. Or, or really one idea, I guess, which is that these games, they reflect a closed historical situation. Okay, closed is important because that for a certain generation of gamers, uh, and this generation is probably overrepresented in the historical part of the gaming hobby, uh, this historical moment is a touchstone for a certain part of life. And I think this idea of, uh, of a memorable historical moment is can be... Uh, difficult to achieve. And when you get one, you get a lot of games about it. Um, very different to a different game about the West versus Russia that came out last year, but wasn't part of the NATO versus Warsaw Pact milieu, uh, but I think is related. And I'd like to talk about that. So um, I should correct myself. When I say a game came out, that's a bit misleading because really this is another reprint. Uh, GMT uh, released a couple reprints last year that I've spent a fair amount of time with. Um, and just to get further digression, we've got to digress all over the place. Uh, by far, my most anticipated one was Barbarossa Army Group Center, Vance von Bory's East Front, East Front System, which I've been complaining about on this, on this podcast forever about how it was stuck in production, right? They've got all these uh, East Front series games that have met their uh, P500 number years ago. And they're just not coming out. Well, one came out. I understand Army Group North is not too far behind, hopefully. Um, and 
so this one finally got out the door, Army Group Center, and they, it, the GMT did a great job. I even got it to the table for a face-to-face game just a few months ago, and that was a real treat. Um, but I won't talk about that here because hopefully that'll be part of the next podcast, which will just cover Eastern Front things uh, more generally and thematically. So, But this time, let's talk about GMT's other reprint, uh, which is related to the NATO Warsaw Pact theme, and that's uh, 2017's Next War Poland. So that had been out of stock at GMT for a while, and I was very glad to see it re-released. And physically, it looks great. Uh, I mentioned on the uh, interview with Herman uh, how you know GMT's components are noticeably better now than they were even five years ago. They have thicker counters, sturdier boxes, and stuff, and it's 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 noticeable. Uh, so the original Next War Poland, it, it's interesting. It was based on this sort of 2014, 2015-ish political situation. Uh, in which Russia has annexed Crimea, but the situation in the Donbass is, um, well, let's call it murky. I, I don't think there was a lot of real insight into it at the time, or maybe some denial. And the uh, the take-home lesson was that Russia maybe was a revanchist, and the, you know, the details, well, uh, they weren't that important, or, or, or they weren't even known. Um, and uh, frankly, uh, you know, Next War Poland wasn't the only game that came out about this back then, Thai Bomba. Uh, who's an inveterate speculative war designer, uh, designed Putin Strikes, which was published by One Small Step uh, and posited a Russian invasion of the Baltic states. Um, Taibamba actually also designed Putin's Northern War, which looked at a hypothetical invasion of Finland. Uh, Now, I'll warn you, I'm just going to be honest. Neither of those games I don't think was very good, and I don't recommend you necessarily play them. Uh, in fact, Putin's Northern War, especially, uh, struck me as a rush job for a magazine deadline. I mean, it just, it, it really seemed kind of obvious. Um, but <clears throat> anyway, the stuff was out there, and Next War Poland took a, a lot more detailed look at the same thing, uh, which was what you could say was the predominant threat to NATO at the time, which was a Russian invasion of the Baltic states and or Poland. Okay, so we're going to call this the historical moment, as it were, uh, Although for a lot of people not in Eastern Europe, the you know the post-Maidan crypto invasion might seem like a historical moment that, up until recently, was overshadowed by other things happening at the time. Okay. Anyway, like I said, went out of print, and now it's been reprinted. But re-releasing Next War Poland comes with one huge problem, right? Just prior to the re-release, a massive modern mechanized war broke out in Europe. Uh, just saying. Uh, and in a region that's, you know, an essential part of the security situation that's being depicted in this game. And it's this ongoing situation that has not been resolved. So I don't see how you can really go back to it without addressing the variables. And when I say that, I specifically don't mean redoing the combat systems or incorporating drones or Bayraktars or freeing the leopards or whatever lessons you want to draw from the Ukraine war, because I don't think you can necessarily draw those lessons now. It's too early. Nobody knows anything. Or should I say, the the things people think they know, this is Michael Kaufman again, uh, paraphrasing him, the the things people think they know are probably wrong. Uh, and I wouldn't suggest that Mitch Land go out and start crunching Ukraine war data to somehow update the values for Russian armor units, right? And, and to Mitch's great credit, he essentially says as much in the designer's notes to the second edition, right? Uh, basically says it's too early to really draw any conclusions. We're not going to, you know, the war is always changing. 
Um, and, you know, I don't have any inside info on this, but I'll bet that the game was well into the production cycle when the war started. And th- there probably wasn't a lot of time to address these things apart from sticking a paragraph in the back of the rules and the designer's notes that basically said, yep, we know there's a war in Ukraine. And that's fine. I don't blame anyone in gaming for how the actual world turns out. Um, sometimes things just happen. But, uh, but for some reason, the historical moment the game represents seems way more inauthentic than the 1980s NATO Warsaw Pact one. Because unlike NATO versus Warsaw Pact in the 1980s, it's not a closed historical moment. This one is a very much open. And what seemed like a stable situation, or might have seemed like a stable situation in the mid-2010s, became spectacularly unstable. Frankly, that moment almost seems like a footnote now, rather than the culmination that a NATO-Warsaw Pact war would have been. In the latter case, the Cold War ended, and all the fears we had about a nuclear war between the U.S. and the USSR faded to a kind of, I don't know, Matthew Broderick, Patrick Swayze, hazy memory. Uh, you know, with the most memorable thing being those instantly recognizable 1980s haircuts. You know, history moved on. And so it's a safe memory, like, I don't know, Princess Bride or The Last Starfighter, um, you know, which we also as gamers can use as an imaginative bridge to the time we were in high school or college or in the military or in some job, uh, just something that we were doing at the time. Uh, at a time we didn't have smartphones and the only time regularly uh, that people saw, you know, non-military people saw NATO tanks was on the TV news in the evening, which is when you watched it. So for certain people like me, it's, I don't know, it's kind of like your old D&D campaign. I mean, I, I pull out those old D&D modules all the time. Uh, another aside, remember the Against the Giants series, like the uh, Hill Giant Chief and the Frost Giant Jarl, and man, I love those things. Then you went underground, you, the, the next modules to fight the Drow. Was it Drow or Drow? Okay, I, that's a digression. I'll move on. Um, okay, so you could make the argument that the events in Ukraine are part of the ongoing collapse of the Soviet Union so that this closed period that I'm talking about uh, in 1989, that year wasn't really the culmination we think it was. But I, I don't think I'm, I'm, I'm not going to get into that argument. I, I don't agree. I think the, the situation, it, so much has changed and so much time has passed that I think you can put a chapter mark at the end of the 1980s in that respect. I mean, otherwise, everything is connected. Uh, you think the time of troubles has nothing to do with the Battle of the Boyne? I mean, they're almost 300 years apart, but very much connected. So let's not nitpick. So where are we on next for Poland? So I, I, I found it interesting that Mitch included the Polish 18th Mechanized Division in this updated order of battle, which I know was announced in late 2018, but I don't think really got established until, uh, I don't think like 2020 or so. So <clears throat> what this means is that next war Poland is really putting an underline and a period under a situation that was about to undergo a radical transformation, and it seems very artificial given what, you know, what's happened since. I, I'm not sure I have much interest from a historical perspective on what the world looked like in 2020 in Eastern Europe because how it looks now still hasn't been finalized, and that was an unstable situation. To me, it, it kind of feels like if you designed a game, uh, a, like a speculative war game, in 1936 about what Europe was going to be like in 1937 but then released it in 1939, 
right? In 2017, okay, that particular window might have seemed like a reasonable, reasonable place to stop and model history. But who would have known history would decide to accelerate so quickly? And by the way, there is an example of a war game that was uh, made about a conflict that was very much ongoing. And that was when SBI published Jim Dunnigan's and John Prados's Year of the Rat about the 1972 communist offensive in Vietnam. And I think that game actually came out in 1972. And it wasn't very good, to, to be honest, which I don't want to extrapolate to next war Poland, because from purely a gaming standpoint, there are a lot of things I really like about it. Uh, and some things I really don't. Um, and part of that has to do with the second edition, but I'm going to save that for another time. And that's it for this time. Boy, it's nice to have that wrapped up. <laughs> when I briefly jumped into the chat for Ardwolf's discussion on Canadian wargaming, uh, the day before I recorded this, actually, David Thompson sent, a, sent me a chat message saying, hey, what about that podcast of yours? You know, something, something along those lines. And I came very close to saying, you'll find out tomorrow. But that would have sounded like any number of wild weasels coming soon comments that I, you know, I have made over the past few months or probably a year or, okay, more than a year. So in the end, I kept my mouth shut. Until today. Next time, we'll move a bit more firmly into the new format. Between now and then... I need to get Mark Herman the order of battle information he asked me for a long, long time ago. I'm sorry, Mark. Until then, thanks for listening. And we'll see you next time for more wargaming people and views, but maybe not so much news. This has been Wild Weasel, number 19.